This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Last of the Masters by Philip K. Dick. It's read by Mike Vendetti. It runs one hour, 16 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. The Last of the Masters by Philip K. Dick. This is a Mike Vendetti production. Consciousness collected around him. He returned with reluctance. The weight of centuries and unbearable fatigue lay over him. The ascent was painful. He would have shrieked if there were anything to shriek with. And anyhow, he was beginning to feel glad. Eight thousand times he had crept back thus with ever-increasing difficulty. Some day he wouldn't make it. Some day the black pool would remain. But not this day. He was still alive, above the Aching pain and reluctance came joyful triumph. Good morning, a bright voice said. Isn't it a nice day? I'll pull the curtains and you can look out. He could see and hear, but he couldn't move. He lay quietly and allowed the various sensations of the room to pour in on him. Carpets, wallpaper, cables, lamps, pictures, desk and vidscreen. Gleaming yellow sunlight streamed through the window, blue sky. Distant hills, fields, buildings, roads, factories, workers, and machines. Peter Green was busily straightening things. His young faith wreathed with smiles. Lots to do today. Lots of people to see you. Bills to sign. Decisions to make. This is Saturday. There will be people coming in from the remote sectors. I hope the maintenance crew has done a good job. He added quickly. They have, of course. I talked to Fowler on my way over here. Everything is fixed up fine. The youth's pleasant tenor mixed with the bright sunlight, sounds and sights, but nothing else. He could feel nothing. He tried to move his arm, but nothing happened. Don't worry, Green said, catching his terror. They'll soon be along with the rest. You'll be all right. You have to be. How could we survive without you? He relaxed. God knew. It had happened often enough before. Anger surged dully. Why couldn't they coordinate? Get it up all at once, not piecemeal. He'd have to change their schedules, make them organize better. Past the bright window, a squat metal car chugged to a halt. Ununiformed men piled out, gathered up heavy armloads of equipment, and hurried toward the main entrance of the building. Here they come, Green exclaimed with relief. A little late, eh? Another traffic tie-up, Fowler snorted as he entered. Something wrong with the signal system again. Outside flow got mixed up with the urban stuff. Tied up on all sides. I wish you'd change the law. Now there was motion all around him. The shapes of Fowler and McLean loomed. Two giant moons abruptly ascendant. Professional faces that peered down at him anxiously. He was turned over on his side. Muffled conferences, urgent whispers. The clank of tools. Here, Fowler muttered. Now here. No, that's later. Be careful. Now run it up through here. The work continued in taut silence. He was aware of their closeness. Dim outlines occasionally cut off his light. He was turned this way and that, thrown around like a sack of meal. 
Okay, Fowler said. Tape it. A long silence. He gazed dully at the wall, at the slightly faded blue and pink wallpaper, an old design that showed a woman in hoop skirts with a little parasol over a dainty shoulder, a frilly white blouse, tiny tips of shoes, an astoundingly clean puppy at her side. Then he was turned back to face upward. Five shapes groaned and strained over him. Their fingers flew, their muscles rippled under their shirts. At last they straightened up and retreated. Fowler wiped sweat from his face. They were all tense and blurry-eyed. Go ahead, Fowler rasped. Throw it. Shock hit him. He gasped. His body arched, then settled slowly down. His body. He could feel. He moved his arms experimentally. He touched his face, his shoulder, the wall. The wall was real and hard. All at once the world had become three-dimensional again. Relief showed on Fowler's face. Thank God, he sagged wearily. How do you feel? After a moment he answered, All right. Fowler sent the rest of the crew out. Green began dusting again off in the corner. Fowler sat down on the edge of the bed and lit his pipe. Now listen to me, he said. I've got bad news. I'll give it to you the way you always want it, straight from the shoulder. What is it? he demanded. He examined his fingers. He already knew. There were dark circles under Fowler's eyes. He hadn't shaved. His square-jawed face was drawn and unhealthy. We were up all night, working on your motor system. We've got a jury rigged, but it won't hold. Not more than another few months. The thing's climbing. The basic units can't be replaced. When they wear, they're gone. We can weld in relays and wiring, but we can't fix the five synopsis coils. There were only a few men who could make those, and they've been dead two centuries. If the coils burn out... Is there any deterioration in the synapsis coils? He interrupted. Not yet. Just motor areas. Arms in particular. What's happening to your legs will happen to your arms, and finally, all your motor systems. You'll be paralyzed by the end of the year. You'll be able to see, hear, and think. And broadcast. But that's all, he added. Sorry, Boris. We're doing all we can. All right, Boris said. You're excused. Thanks for telling me straight. I guessed. Ready to go down? A lot of people with problems today. They're stuck until you get there. Let's go. He focused his mind with an effort and turned his attention to the details of the day. I want the heavy metals research program speeded. It's lagging. As usual, I may have to pull a number of men from related work and shift them to the generators. The water level will be dropping soon. I want to start feeding power along the lines while there's still power to feed. As soon as I turn my back, everything starts falling apart. Fowler signaled Green, and he came quickly over. The two of them bent over bores, and grunting hoisted him up and carried him to the door, down the corridor and outside. They deposited him in the squat metal car, the new little service truck. Its polished surface was a startling contrast to his pitted, corroded hull, bent and splotched and eaten away. A dull patina-covered machine of archaic steel and plastic that hummed faintly, rustily, as the men leaped in the front seat 
and raced the car out onto the main highway. Edward Tolby perspired, pushed his pack up higher, hunched over, tightened his gun belt, and cursed. Daddy, Sylvia reproved, cut that out. Tolby spat furiously in the grass at the side of the road. He put his arm around his slim daughter. Sorry, Sylv, nothing personal, but damned heat. Mid-morning sun shimmered down the dusty road. Clouds of dust rose and billowed around the three as they pushed slowly along. They were dead tired. Tolby's heavy face was flushed and sullen. An unlit cigarette dangled between his lips. His big, powerfully built body was hunched resentfully forward. His daughter's canvas shirt clung moistly to her arms and breasts. Wounds of sweat darkened her back. Under her jeans, her thigh muscles rippled wearily. Robert Penn walked a little behind the two Tolbleys, hands deep in his pockets, eyes on the road ahead. His mind was blank. He was half asleep from the double shot of hexobarb he had swallowed at the last league camp, and the heat lulled him. On each side of the road, fields stretched out, pastures of grass and weeds, a few trees here and there, a tumbled-down farmhouse, the ancient rusting remains of a bomb shelter, two centuries old, once some dirty sheep, Sheep, Penn said. Eat the grass too far down, it won't grow back. Now he's a farmer, Tolby said to his daughter. Daddy, Sylvia snapped, stop being nasty. It's this heat, this damn heat. Tolby cursed again, loudly and futilely. It's not worth it. For ten pinks, I'd go back and tell them it was a lot of pig swill. Maybe it is at that, Penn said mildly. All right, you go back, Tolby grunted. You go back and tell them it's a lot of pig's will. They'll pin a medal on you, maybe raise you up a grade. Penn laughed. Both of you shut up. There's some kind of town ahead. Tolby's massive body straightens eagerly. Where? He shielded his eyes. My God, he's right. A village. And it isn't a mirage. You see it, don't you? His good humor returned, and he rubbed his big hands together. What say, Penn? Couple of beers? Few games of throw with some of the local peasants? Maybe we can stay overnight. He licked his thick lips with anticipation. Some of those village wenches, the kind that hang around the grog shops. I know the kind you mean, Penn broke in. The kind that are tired of doing nothing. Want to see the big commercial centers? want to meet some guy that'll buy them mecco stuff and take them places. At the side of the road, a farmer was watching them curiously. He had halted his horse and stood leaning on his crude plow, hat pushed back on his head. What's the name of this town? Toby yelled. The farmer was silent a moment. He was an old man, thin and weathered. This town? He repeated. Yeah, the one ahead. It's a nice town. The farmer eyed the three of them. You been through here before? No, sir, Toby said. Never. Team breakdown? No, we're on foot. How far are you come? About a hundred and fifty miles. The farmer considered the heavy packs strapped on their backs, their cleated hiking shoes, dusty clothing and weary, sweat-streaked faces, jeans and canvas shirts, ironite walking staffs, that's a long way, he said. 
How far are you going? As far as we feel like it, Toby answered. Is there a place ahead we can stay? Hotel? Inn? That town, the farmer said, is Fairfax. It has a lumber mill, one of the best in the world. A couple of pottery works, place where you can get clothes put together by machines. Regular mecco clothing. A gun shop where they pour the best shot this side of the Rockies. And a bakery. Also, there's an old doctor living there and a lawyer. And some people with books to teach the kids. They came here with TB. They made a schoolhouse out of an old barn. How large a town? Penn asked. A lot of people. War born all the time. Old folks die. Kids die. We had a fever last year. About a hundred kids died. Doctor said it came from the water hole. We shut the water hole down. Kids died anyhow. Doctor said it was the milk. Drove off half the cows. Not mine. I stood out there with my gun, and I shot the first of them came to drive off my cow. Kids stopped dying as soon as fall came. I think it was the heat. Sure is hot, Toby agreed. Yes, gets hot around here. Water's pretty scarce. Crafty look slid across his old face. You folks want a drink? The young lady looks pretty tired. Got some bottles of water down under the house, in the mud. Nice and cold. He hesitated. Pick a glass. Toby laughed. No, thanks. Two glasses of pink, the farmer said. Not interested, Penn said. He thumped his canteen, and the three of them started on. So long. The farmer's face hardened. Damn foreigners, he muttered. He turned angrily back to his plowing. The town baked in silence. Flies buzzed and settled on the backs of stupefied horses tied up at posts. Few cars were parked here and there. People moved listlessly along the sidewalks. Elderly, lean-bodied men dozed on porches. Dogs and chickens slept in the shade under houses. The houses were small, wooden, chipped, and peeling boards leaning in anger and old. Warped and split by age and heat, dust lay over everything a thick blanket of dried dust over the cracking houses and the dull-faced men and animals. Two lank men approached them from an open doorway. Who are you? What do you want? They stopped and got out their identification. The men examined the sealed plastic cards, photographs, fingerprints, data. Finally, they handed them back. A.L., one said. You really from the Anarchist League? That's right, Toby said. Even the girl? The men eyed Sylvie with languid greed. Tell you what, let us have the girl a while and we'll skip the head tax. Don't kid me, Toby grunted. Since when does the league pay head tax or any other tax? He pushed past them impatiently. Where's the grog shop? I'm dying. A two-story white building was on their left. Men lounged on the porch, watching them vacantly. Penn headed toward it, and the Colbys followed. A faded, peeling sign lettered across the front read, Beer, wine on tap. This is it, Penn said. He guided Sylvia up the sagging steps, past the men, and inside. Toby followed. He unstrapped his pack gratefully as he came. The place was cool and dark. A few men and women were at the bar. The rest sat around tables. Some youths were playing throw in the back. A mechanical tune-maker wheezed and composed in the corner. 
a shabby, half-ruined machine only partially functioning. Behind the bar, a primitive scene-shifter created and destroyed vague phantasmagoria. Seascapes, mountain peaks, snowy valleys, great rolling hills, a nude woman that lingered and then dissolved into one vast breast, dim, uncertain processions that no one noticed or looked at. The bar itself was an incredibly ancient sheet of transparent plastic, stained and chipped and yellow with age. Its engraved code faded from one end, bricks now propped it up. The drink mixer had long since fallen apart. Only wine and beer were served. No living man knew how to fix the simplest drink. Tolby moved up to the bar. Beer, he said. Three beers. Penn and Sylvia sank down at a table and removed their packs, as the bartender served Tolby three mugs of thick, dark beer. He showed his card and carried the mugs over to the table. The youth in the back had stopped playing. They were watching the three as they sipped their beer and unlaced their hiking boots. After a while, one of them came slowly over. Hey, he said, you're from the League. That's right, Tolby muttered sleepily. Everyone in the place was watching and listening. The youth sat down across from the three. His companions flocked excitedly around and took seats on all sides. The juveniles of the town, bored, restless, dissatisfied, their eyes took in the ironite staffs, the guns, the heavy metal cleated boots. A murmured whisper rustled through them. They were about eighteen, tanned, rangy. How do you get in? one of them demanded bluntly. The league? Tolby leaned back in his chair, found a match, and lit his cigarette. He unfastened his belt, belched loudly, and settled back contentedly. You get in by examination. What do you have to know? Tolby shrugged. Found everything. He belched again and scratched thoughtfully at his chest, between two buttons. He was conscious of the ring of people around on all sides. A little old man with a beard and horn-rimmed glasses. At another table, a great tub of a man in red shirt and blue-striped trousers with a bulging stomach. Youth, farmers, a negro in a dirty white shirt and trousers. A book under his arm. A hard-jawed blonde, hair in a net, red nails, and high heels, tight yellow dress. Sitting with a gray-haired businessman in a dark brown suit. A tall young man holding hands with a young black-haired girl, huge eyes in a soft white blouse and skirt. Little slippers kicked under the table. Under the table, her bare, tanned feet twisted. Her slim body was bent forward with interest. You have to know, Toby said, how the League was formed. You have to know how we pulled down the governments that day, pulled them down and destroyed them, burned all the buildings, and all the records, billions of microfilms and papers, great bonfires that burned for weeks, and the swarms of little white things that poured out when we knocked the buildings over. You killed them? The great tub of a man asked, lips twitching avidly. We let them go. They were harmless. They ran and hid under rocks. Toby laughed. Funny little scurrying things, insects. Then we went in and gathered up all the records and equipment for making records. By God, we burned everything. And the robots, a youth said. Yeah, we smashed all the government robots. There weren't many of them. 
They were used only at high levels, when a lot of facts had to be integrated. The youth's eyes bulged. You saw them? You were there, when they smashed the robots? Pym laughed. Tolby means the League. That was two hundred years ago. The youth grinned nervously. Yeah, tell us about the marches. Tolby drained his mug and pushed it away. I'm out of beer. The mug was quickly refilled. He grunted his thanks and continued, voice deep and furry, dulled with fatigue. The marches. That was really something, they say. All over the world, people getting up, throwing down what they were doing. It started in East Germany, the hard-jawed blonde said. The rides. Then it spread to Poland, the Negro put in shyly. My grandfather used to tell me how everybody sat and listened to the television. His grandfather used to tell him it spread to Czechoslovakia, and then Austria, and Romania, and Bulgaria, then France and Italy. France was first, the little old man with the beard and glasses cried violently. They were without a government a whole month. The people saw they could live without a government. The marches started it, the black-haired girl corrected. That was the first time they started pulling down the government buildings in East Germany and Poland. Big mobs of unorganized workers. Russia and America were the last, Tolby said. When the march on Washington came, there was close to twenty million of us. We were big in those days. They couldn't stop us when we finally moved. They shot a lot, the hard-faced blonde said. Sure. But the people kept coming and yelling to the soldiers, Hey, Bill, don't shoot. Hey, Jack, it's me, Joe. Don't shoot. We're your friends. Don't kill us. Join us. And by God, after a while, they did. They couldn't keep shooting their own people. They finally threw down their guns and got out of the way. And then you found the place, the little black-haired girl said breathlessly. Yeah, we found the place. Six places. Three in America, one in Britain, two in Russia. Took us ten years to find the last place and make sure it was the last place. What then? The youth asked, bug-eyed. Then we busted every one of them. Toby raised himself up, a massive man, beer mug clutched, heavy face flushed dark red. Every damn A-bomb in the world. There was an uneasy silence. Yeah, the youth murmured. You sure took care of those war people. Won't be any more of them, the great tub of a man said. They're gone for good. Tolby fingered his eye on his staff. Maybe so, maybe not. There just might be a few of them left. What do you mean? the tub of the man demanded. Tolby raised his hard gray eyes. It's time you people stopped kidding us. You know damn well what I mean. We've heard rumors. Some place around this area there's a bunch of them hiding out. Shocked disbelief, then anger hummed to a roar. That's a lie, the tub of man shouted. Is it? The little man with beard and glasses leaped up. There's nobody here has anything to do with government. We're all good people. You better watch your step, one of the youth said softly to Toby. People around here don't like to be accused. Toby got unsteadily to his feet. His ironite staff gripped. Penn got up beside him, and they stood together. If any of you know something, Tolby said, you better tell it. 
right now. Nobody knows anything, the hard-faced blonde said. You're talking to honest folks. That's so, the negro said, nodding his head. Nobody here's doing anything wrong. You saved our lives, the black-haired girl said. If you hadn't pulled down the government, we'd all be dead in the war. Why should we hold back something? That's true, the great tub of a man grumbled. We wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for the League. You think we'd do anything against the League? Come on, Sylvia said to her father. Let's go. She got to her feet and tossed Penny's pack. Toby grunted belligerently. Finally, he took his own pack and hoisted it to his shoulder. The room was deathly silent. Everyone stood frozen as the three gathered their things and moved toward the door. The little dark-haired girl stopped them. Next town is thirty miles from here, she said. The road's blocked, her tall companion explained. Slides closed it years ago. Why don't you stay with us tonight? There's plenty of room at our place. You can rest up and get an early start tomorrow. We don't want to impose, Sylvia murmured. Dolby and Penn glanced at each other, then at the girl. If you're sure you have plenty of room... The great tub of a man approached them. Listen, I have ten yellow slips. I want to give them to the League. I sold my farm last year. I don't need any more slips. I'm living with my brother and his family. He pushed the slips at Tolby. Here. Tolby pushed them back. Keep them. This way, the tall young man said, as they clattered down the sagging steps into a sudden blinding curtain of heat and dust. We have a car. Over this way. An old gasoline car. My dad fixed it so it burns oil. You should have taken the slips, Penn said to Tolby, as they got into the ancient battered car. Flies buzzed around them. They could hardly breathe. The car was a furnace. Sylvia fanned herself with a rolled-up paper. The black-haired girl unbuttoned her blouse. What do we need money for? Tolby laughed good-naturedly. I haven't paid for anything in my life. Neither of you. The car sputtered and moved slowly forward onto the road. It began to gain speed. Its motor banged and roared. Soon it was moving surprisingly fast. You saw them, Sylvia said over the racket. They'd give us anything they had. We saved their lives. She waved at the fields, the farmers and their crude teams, the withered crops, the sagging old farmhouses. They'd all be dead if it hadn't been for the League. She smashed a fly peevishly. They depend on us. The black-haired girl turned toward them as the car rushed along the decaying road. Sweat streaked her tan skin. Her half-covered breast trembled with the motion of the car. I'm Laura Davis. Pete and I have an old farmhouse his dad gave him when we got married. You can have the hole downstairs, Pete said. There's no electricity, but we've got a big fireplace. It gets cold at night. It's hot in the day, but when the sun sets, it gets terribly cold. We'll be all right, Penn murmured. The vibration of the car made him a little sick. Yes, the girl said, her black eyes flashing, her crimson lips twisted. She leaned toward Penn intently, her small face strangely alight. Yes, we'll take good care of you. At that moment, the car left the road. Sylvia shrieked. Tolby threw himself down, head between his knees, doubled up in a ball. 
a sudden curtain of green burst around Penn, and a sickening emptiness as the car plunged down. It struck with a roaring crash that blotted out everything, a single titanic cataclysm of fury that picked Penn up and flung his remains in every direction. Put me down, Boris ordered, on this railing for a moment before I go inside. The crew lowered him onto the concrete surface and fastened magnetic grapples into place. Men and women hurried up the wide steps in and out of the massive building that was Boar's main office. The sight from these steps pleased him. He liked to stop here and look around at his world, at the civilization he had carefully constructed. Each piece added painstakingly, scrupulously, with infinite care throughout the years. It wasn't big. The mountains ringed it on all sides. The valley was a level bowl, surrounded by dark violet hills. Outside beyond the hills, the regular world began. Parched fields, blasted, poverty-stricken towns, decayed roads, the remains of houses, tumbled-down farm buildings, ruined cars and machinery, dust-covered people, creeping listlessly around in handmade clothing, dull rags and tatters. He had seen the outside. He knew what it was like. At the mountains, the blank faces, the disease, the withered crops, the crude plows and ancient tools all ended here. Here, within the ring of hills, Boris had constructed an accurate and detailed reproduction of a society two centuries gone. The world as it had been in the old days. The time of Guthrum's. The time that had been pulled down by the Anarchist League. Within his five synapsis coils, the plans, knowledge, information, blueprints of a whole world existed. In the two centuries, he had carefully recreated that world, had made this miniature society that glittered and hummed on all sides of him. The roads, buildings, houses, industries of a dead world, all a fragment of the past, built with his own hands, his own metal fingers and brain. Fowler, Boris said. Fowler came over. He looked haggard. His eyes were red-rimmed and swollen. What is it? You want to go inside? Overhead, the morning patrol thundered past, a string of black dots against the sunny, cloudless skies. Boris watched with satisfaction. Quite a sight. Right on the nose, Fowler agreed, examining his wristwatch. To the right, a column of heavy tanks snaked along, a highway between green fields. Their gun snouts glittered. Behind them, a column of foot soldiers marched, faces hidden behind bacteria masks. I'm thinking, Bors said, that it may be unwise to trust Green any longer. Why the hell would you say that? Every ten days I'm inactivated, so your crew can see what repairs are needed. Boris twisted restlessly. For twelve hours I'm completely helpless. Green takes care of me. Sees nothing happens. But... But what? It occurs to me perhaps there'd be more safety in a squad of troops. It's too much of a temptation for one man alone. Fowler scowled. I don't see that. How about me? I have charge of inspecting you. I could switch a few leads around. Send a load through your synopsis coils. 
blew them out. Boris whirled wildly, then subsided. Drew, you could do that. After a moment he demanded, But what would you gain? You know I'm the only one who can keep all this together. I'm the only one who knows how to maintain a planned society, not a disorderly chaos. If it weren't for me, all this would collapse, and you would have dust and ruin and weeds. The whole outside would come rushing in to take over. Of course. So why worry about green? Trucks of workers rumbled past, loads of men in blue-green sleeves rolled up, armloads of tools, a mining team heading for the mountains. Take me inside, Boris said abruptly. Fowler called McLean. They hoisted Boars and carried him past the throngs of people into the building, down the corridor and to his office. Officials and technicians moved respectively out of the way as the great pitted, corroded tank was carried past. All right, Boris said impatiently. That's all. You can go. Fowler and McLean left the luxurious office with its lush carpets, furniture, drapes, and rows of books. Boris was already bent over his desk, sorting through heaps of reports and papers. Fowler shook his head as they walked down the hall. He won't last much longer. Motor system? Can't we reinforce the... I don't mean that. He's breaking up mentally. He can't take the strain any longer. None of us can, McLean muttered. Running this thing is too much for him, knowing it's all dependent on him, knowing as soon as he turns his back or lets down, it'll begin to come apart at the seams. A hell of a job trying to shut out the real world, keeping his model universe running. He's gone on a long time, McLean said. Fowler brooded. Sooner or later we're going to have to face the situation. Gloomily he ran his fingers along the blade of a large screwdriver. He's wearing out. Sooner or later somebody's going to have to step in as he continues to decay. He struck the screwdriver back in his belt with his pliers and hammer and soldering iron. One crossed wire. What's that? Fowler laughed. He's got me doing it. One crossed wire and poof. But what then? That's the big question. Maybe, McLean said softly. You and I can then get off this rat race. You and I and all the rest of us and live like human beings. Rat race, Fowler murmured. Rats in a maze, doing tricks, performing chores, thought up by somebody else. McLean caught Fowler's eye. By somebody of another species. Toby struggled vaguely. Silence, a faint dripping close by. A beam pinned his body down. He was caught on all sides by the twisted wreck of the car. He was head down. The car was turned on its side. Off the road in a gully wedged between two huge trees. Bent struts and smashed metal all around him and bodies. He pushed up with all his strength, the beam gave, and he managed to get to a sitting position. A tree branch had burst in the windshield. A black-haired girl, still turned toward the back seat, was impaled on it. The branch had driven through her spine, out her chest, and into the seat. She clutched at it with both hands, head limp, mouth half open. 
The man beside her was also dead. His hands were gone. The windshield had burst around him. He lay in a heap among the remains of the dashboard and the bloody shine of his own internal organs. Ben was dead. Neck snap, like a rotten broom handle. Dolby pushed his corpse aside and examined his daughter. Sylvia didn't stir. He put his ear to her shirt and listened. She was alive. Her heart beat faintly. Her bosom rose and fell against his ear. He wound a handkerchief around her arm, where the flesh was ripped open and oozing blood. She was badly cut and scratched. One leg was doubled under her, obviously broken. Her clothes were ripped, her hair matted with blood. But she was alive. He pushed the twisted door open and stumbled out. A fiery tongue of afternoon sunlight struck him, and he winced. He began to ease her limp body out of the car, past the twisted door frame. A sound. Toby glanced up, rigid. Something was coming. A whirring insect that rapidly descended. He let go of Sylvia, crouched, glanced around, then lumbered awkwardly down the gully. He slid and fell and rolled among the green vines and jagged gray boulders. His gun gripped, he lay gasping in the moist shadows. Peering upward, the insect landed, a small airship, jet-driven. The sight stunned him. He had heard about jets, seen photographs of them, been briefed and lectured in the history indoctrination courses at the League campus. But to see a jet, men swarmed out uniformed men who started from the road, down the side of the gully, bodies crouched warily as they approached the wrecked car. They lugged heavy rifles. They looked grim and experienced as they tore the car doors open and scrambled in. One's gone, a voice drifted to him. Must be around somewhere. Look, this one's alive. This woman started to crawl out, the rest all dead. Furious cursing. Damn, Laura. She should have leaped. The fanatic little fool. Maybe she didn't have time. God's sake, the thing's all the way through her. Horror and shock dismay. We won't hardly be able to get her loose. Leave her. The officer directing things waved the men back out of the car. Leave them all. How about this wounded one? The leader hesitated. Kill her, he said finally. He snatched the rifle and raised the butt. The rest of you fan out and try to get the other one. He's probably. Tolby fired and the leader's body broke in half. The lower part sank down slowly, the upper dissolved in ashy fragments. Tolby turned and began to move in a slow circle, firing as he crawled. He got two more of them before the rest retreated in panic to their jet-powered insect and slammed the lock. He had the element of surprise. Now that was gone. They had strength and numbers. He was doomed. Already the insect was rising. They'd be able to spot him easily from above. But he had saved Sylvia. That was something. He stumbled down a dried-up creek bed. He ran aimlessly. He had no place to go. He didn't know the countryside, and he was on foot. He slipped on a stone and fell headlong. Pain and billowing darkness beat at him as he got unsteadily to his knees. His gun was gone, lost in the shrubbery. He spat broken teeth and blood. He peered wildly at the blazing afternoon sky. The insect was leaving. It hummed off toward the distant hills. It dwindled, became a black ball, 
a flyer speck, then disappeared. Tolby waited a moment. Then he struggled up the side of the ravine to the wrecked car. They had gone to get help. They'd be back. Now was his only chance. If he could get Sylvia out and down the road, into hiding. Maybe to a farmhouse, back to town. He reached the car and stood dazed and stupefied. Three bodies remained, the two in the front seat, pinned in the back. But Sylvia was gone. They had taken her with them, back where they came from. She had been dragged to the jet-driven insect. A trail of blood led from the car up the side of the gully to the highway. With a violent shudder, Tolby pulled himself together. He climbed into the car and pried loose Penn's gun from his belt. Sylvia's ironite staff rested on the seat. He took that, too. Then he started off down the road, walking without haste, carefully, slowly. An ironic thought plucked at his mind. He had found what they were after, the men in uniform. They were organized, responsible to a central authority in a newly assembled jet. Beyond the hills was the government. Sir, Green said. He smoothed his short blonde hair anxiously, his young face twisting. Technicians and experts and ordinary people in droves were everywhere. The offices buzzed and echoed with the business of the day. Green pushed through the crowd and to the desk where Bohr sat, propped up by two magnetic frames. Sir, Green said, something's happened. Bohr's looked up. He pushed the metal foil slate away and laid down his stylus. His eye cells clicked and flickered. Deep inside his battered trunk motor gears whined. What is it? Green came close. There was something in his face, an expression Bohr's had never seen before. A look of fear and glassy determination. A glazed, fanatic cast, as his flesh had hardened to rock. Sir, scouts contacted a league team moving north. They met the team outside Fairfax. The incident took place directly beyond the first roadblock. Boris said nothing. On all sides, officials, experts, farmers, workmen, industrial managers, soldiers, people of all kinds, buzzed and murmured and pushed forward impatiently trying to get to Bohr's desk. Loaded down with problems to be solved, situations to be explained, the pressing business of the day. Roads, factories, disease control, repairs, construction, manufacture, design, planning. Urgent problem for Bohr's to consider and deal with. Problems they couldn't wait. Was the league team destroyed? Bohr's asked. One was killed. One was wounded and brought here. Green hesitated. One escaped. For a long time, Boris was silent. Around him, the people murmured and shuffled. He ignored them. All at once, he pulled the vid scanner to him and snapped the circuit open. One escaped. I don't like the sound of that. He shot three members of our scout unit, including the leader. The others got frightened. They grabbed the injured girl and returned here. Boris's massive head lifted. They made a mistake. They should have located the one who escaped. This was the first time the situation? I know, Bohr said. But it was an error. Better not to have touched them at all than to have taken two and allowed the third to get away. He turned to the vid scanner. Sound an emergency alert. Close down the factories, arm the work crews, and any male farmers capable of using weapons. Close every road. 
Remove the women and children to the undersurface shelters. Bring up the heavy guns and supplies. Suspend all non-military production and, he considered, arrest everyone we're not sure of. On the sea sheet, have them shot. He snapped the scanner off. What'll happen? Green demanded, shaken. The thing we've prepared for. Total war. We have weapons, Green shouted excitedly. In an hour there will be ten thousand men ready to fight. We have jet-driven ships, heavy artillery, bombs, bacteria pellets. What's the league? A lot of people with packs on their backs. Yes, War said. A lot of people with packs on their backs. How can they do anything? How can a bunch of anarchists organize? They have no structure, no control, no central power. They have the whole world, a billion people. Individuals, a club, not subject to law, voluntary membership. We have a disciplined organization. Every aspect of our economic life operates at maximum efficiency. We, you, have your thumb on everything. All you have to do is give the order, set the machine in motion. Boris nodded slowly. It's true the anarchists can't coordinate. The League can't organize in an efficient structure. It's a paradox. Government by anarchists. Anti-government, actually. Instead of governing the world, they tramp around to make sure no one else does. Dog in the manger. As you say, they're actually a voluntary club of totally unorganized individuals without law or central authority. They maintain no society. They can't govern. All they can do is interfere with anyone else who tries. Troublemakers. But... But what? It was this way before, two centuries ago. They were unorganized, unarmed, vast mobs without discipline or authority. Yet they pulled down all the governments, all over the world. We've got a whole army. All the roads are mined. Heavy guns, bombs, pellets. Every one of us is a soldier. We're an armed camp. Boris was deep in thought. You say one of them is here. One of the League agents? A young woman. Boris signaled the nearby maintenance crew. Take me to her. I want to talk to her in the time remaining. Sylvia watched silently as the uniformed men pushed and grunted their way into the room. They staggered over to the bed, pulled two chairs together, and carefully laid down their massive armload. Quickly they snapped protective struts into place, locked the chairs together, threw magnetic grapples into operation, and then warily retreated. All right, the robot said. You can go. The men left. Boris turned to face the woman on the bed. A machine, Sylvia whispered, white-faced. You're a machine, Boris nodded slightly without speaking. Sylvia shifted uneasily on the bed. She was weak. One leg was in a transparent plastic cast. Her face was bandaged and her right arm ached and throbbed. Outside the window, the late afternoon sun sprinkled through the drapes. Flowers bloomed, grass, hedges, and beyond the hedges, buildings and factories. For the last hour, the sky had been filled with jet-driven ships, great flocks that raced excitedly across the sky toward distant hills. Along the highway, cars hurtled, dragging guns and heavy military equipment. Men were marching in close rank, rows of gray-clad soldiers, guns and helmets and bacteria masks. 
endless lines of figures, identical in their uniforms, stamped from the same matrix. There are a lot of them, Boris said, indicating the marching men. Yes. Sylvia watched a couple of soldiers hurry by the window, youth with worried expressions on their smooth faces, helmets bobbing at their waists, long rifles, canteens, counters, radiation shields, bacteria masks wound awkwardly around their necks, ready to go into place. They were scared. Hardly more than kids, others followed. A truck roared into life. The soldiers were swept off to join the others. They're going to fight, Boris said, to defend their homes and factories. All this equipment, you manufacture it, don't you? That's right. Our industrial organization is perfect. We're totally productive. Our society here is operated rationally, scientifically. We're fully prepared to meet this emergency. Suddenly Sylvia realized what the emergency was. The League. One of us have, must have got away. She pulled herself up. Which of them? Pen or my father? I don't know, the robot murmured indifferently. Horror and disgust choked Sylvia. My God, she said softly. You have no understanding of us. You run all this, and you're incapable of empathy. You're nothing but a mechanical computer. One of the old government integration robots. That's right, two centuries old. She was appalled. And you've been alive all this time. We thought we destroyed all of you. I was missed. I had been damaged. I wasn't in my place. I was in a truck on my way out of Washington. I saw the mobs and escaped. Two hundred years ago, legendary times. You actually saw the events they tell us about. The old days, the great marches, the day the governments fell. Yes, I saw it all. A group of us formed in Virginia. Experts, officials, skilled workmen. Later we came here. It was remote enough off the beaten path. We heard rumors of fragments still maintaining itself. But we didn't know where or how. I was fortunate, Boris said. I escaped by a fluke. All the others were destroyed. It's taken a long time to organize what you see here. Fifteen miles from here is a ring of hills. This valley is a bowl, mountainous on all sides. We've set up roadblocks in the form of natural slides. Nobody comes here, even in Fairfax, thirty miles off. They know nothing. That girl, Laura. Scouts. We keep scout teams in all inhabited regions within a hundred-mile radius. As soon as you entered Fairfax, word was relayed to us. An air unit was dispatched. To avoid questions, we arranged to have you killed in an auto wreck. But one of you escaped. Sylvia shook her head, bewildered. How? she demanded. How do you keep going? Don't the people revolt? She struggled to a sitting position. They must know what's happened everywhere else. How do you control them? They're going out now in their uniforms. But will they fight? Can you count on them? Boris answered slowly. They trust me, he said. I brought with me a vast amount of knowledge, information and techniques lost to the rest of the world. 
Are jet chips and bit scanners and power cables made anywhere else in the world? I retain all that knowledge. I have memory units, synapsis coils. Because of me, they have these things. Things you know only as dim memories, vague legends. What happens when you die? I won't die. I'm eternal. You're wearing out. You have to be carried around. And your right arm, you can hardly move it. Sylvia's voice was harsh, ruthless. Your whole tank is pitted and rusty. The robot whirred. For a moment, he seemed unable to speak. My knowledge remains, he grated finally. I'll always be able to communicate. Fowler has arranged a broadcast system, even when I talk. He broke off. Even then, everything is under control. I've organized every aspect of the situation. I've maintained this system for two centuries. It's got to be kept going. Sylvia lashed out. It happened in a split second. The boot of her cast caught the chairs on which the robot rested. She thrust violently with her foot and hands. The chairs teetered, hesitated. Power! The robot screamed. Sylvia pushed with all her strength. Blinding agony seared through her leg. But she bit her lip and threw her shoulder against the robot's pitted hulk. He waved his arms, whirred wildly, and then the two chairs slowly collapsed. The robot slid quietly from them, over on his back, his arms still waving helplessly. Sylvia dragged herself from the bed. She managed to pull herself to the window. Her broken leg hung uselessly, a dead weight in its transparent plastic cast. The robot lay like some futile bug, arms waving, eyelids clicking its rusty works whirring in fear and rage. Fowler! It screamed again. Help me! Sylvia reached the window. She tugged at the locks. They were sealed. She grabbed up a lamp from the table and threw it against the glass. The glass burst around her, a shower of lethal fragments. She stumbled forward, and then the repair crew was pouring into the room. Fowler gasped at the sight of the robot on its back. A strange expression crossed his face. Look at him. Help me. The robot shrilled. Help me. One of the men grabbed Sylvia around the waist and lugged her back to the bed. She kicked and bit, sunk her nails into the man's cheeks. He threw her on the bed face down and drew his pistol. Stay there, he gasped. The others were bent over the robot, getting him to an upright position. What happened? Fowler said. He came over to the bed, his face twisting. Did he fall? Sylvia's eyes glowed with hatred and despair. I pushed him over. I almost got there. Her chest heaved. The window. From my leg. Get me back to my quarters, Boris cried. The crew gathered him up and carried him down the hall to his private office. A few moments later, he was stirring shakily at his desk his mechanism pounding wildly, surrounded by his papers and memoranda. He forced down his panic and tried to resume his work. He had to keep going. His vid screen was alive with activity. The whole system was in motion. He blankly watched a subcommander sending up a cloud of black dots, jet bombers that shot up like flies, and headed quickly off. The system had to be preserved. 
He repeated it again and again. He had to save it. Had to organize the people and make them save it. If the people didn't fight, wasn't everything doomed? Fury and desperation overwhelmed him. The system couldn't preserve itself. It wasn't a thing apart. Something that could be separated from the people who lived it. Actually, it was the people. They were identical when the people fought to preserve the system they were fighting to preserve nothing less than themselves. They existed only as long as the system existed. He caught sight of a marching column of white-faced troops moving toward the hills. His ancient synopsis coils radiated and shuddered uncertainly, then fell back into pattern. He was two centuries old. He had come into existence a long time ago in a different world. That world had created him. Through him, that world still lived. As long as he existed, that world existed. In miniature, it still functioned. His model universe, his recreation, his rational, controlled world, in which each aspect was fully organized, fully analyzed, and integrated. He kept a rational, progressive world alive, a humming oasis of productivity on a dusty, parched planet of decay and silence. Boris spread out his papers and went to work on the most pressing problem, the transformation from a peacetime economy to full military mobilization, total military organization of every man, woman, child, piece of equipment, and dying of energy under his direction. Edward Tolby emerged cautiously. His clothes were torn and ragged. He had lost his pack, crawling through the brambles and vines. His face and hands were bleeding. He was utterly exhausted. Below him lay a valley, a vast bowl, fields, houses, highways, factories, equipment, men. He had been watching the men three hours, endless streams of them pouring from the valley into the hills, along the roads and paths, on foot, in trucks, in cars, armored tanks, weapons carriers. Overhead, the fast little jet fighters and great lumbering bombers, gleaming ships that took up positions above the troops and prepared for battle. Battle in the grand style, the two centuries-old full-scale war that was supposed to have disappeared. But here it was a vision from the past. He had seen this in the old tapes and records used in the camp orientation courses. A ghost army resurrected to fight again, a vast host of men and guns prepared to fight and die. Tobley climbed down cautiously. At the foot of a slope of boulders, a soldier had halted his motorcycle and was setting up a communications antenna and transmitter. Tolby circled, crouched, expertly approached him, a blond-haired youth fumbling nervously with the wires and relays, licking his lips uneasily, glancing up and grabbing for his rifle at every sound. Tolby took a deep breath. The youth had turned his back. He was tracing a power circuit. It was now or never. With one stride, Tolby stepped out, raised his pistol, and fired. The clump of equipment and the soldier's rifle vanished. Don't make a sound, Tolby said. He peered around. No one had seen. The main line was half a mile to his right. The sun was setting. Great shadows were falling over the hills. The fields were rapidly fading from brown-green to deep violet. Put your hands up over your head, clasp them, and get down on your knees. The youth tumbled down in a frightened heap. 
What are you going to do? He saw the ironite staff, and the color left his face. You're a league agent. Shut up, Tolby ordered. First outline your system of responsibility. Who's your superior? The youth stuttered forth what he knew. Tolby listened intently. He was satisfied. The usual monolithic structure. Exactly what he wanted. At the top, he broke in. At the top of the pillar. Who has ultimate responsibility? Bores. Bores, Tolby scowled. That doesn't sound like a name. Sounds like he broke off, staggered. We should have guessed. An old government robot still functioning. You saw his chance. He leaped up and darted frantically away. Toby shot him above the left ear. You pitched over on his face and lay still. Toby hurried to him and quickly pulled off his dark gray uniform. It was too small for him, of course, but the motorcycle was just right. He'd seen tapes of them. He'd wanted one since he was a child fast little motorcycle to propel his weight around. Now he had it. Half an hour later, he was roaring down a smooth, broad highway toward the center of the valley and the buildings that rose against the dark sky. His headlights cut into the blackness. He still wobbled from side to side, but for all practical purposes, he had the hang of it. He increased speed. The road shot by. Trees and fields, haystacks, stalled farm equipment. All traffic was going against him. Troops hurrying to the front. The front. Lemmings going out into the ocean to drown. A thousand, ten thousand metal-clad fingers. Armed and alert. Weighted down with guns and bombs and flamethrowers and bacteria pellets. There was only one hitch. No army opposed him. A mistake had been made. It took two sides to make a war. And only one had been resurrected. A mile outside the concentration of buildings, he pulled his motorcycle off the road and carefully hid it in a haystack. For a moment, he considered leaving his ironite staff. Then he shrugged and grabbed it up, along with his pistol. He always carried his staff. It was the League symbol. It represented the walking anarchist to patrol the world on foot, the world's protection agency. He loped through the darkness toward the outline ahead. There were fewer men here. He saw no women or children. Ahead, charged wire was set up. Troops crouched behind it, armed to the teeth. A searchlight moved back and forth across the road. Behind it, radar vanes loomed, and behind them, an ugly square of concrete. The great offices from which the government was run. For a time, he watched the searchlight. Finally, he had its motion plotted. In its glare, the faces of the troops stood out, pale and drawn, youths. They had never fought. This was their first encounter. They were terrified. When the light was off him, he stood up and advanced toward the wire. Automatically, a breach was slid back for him. Two guards raised up and awkwardly crossed bayonets ahead of him. Show your papers, one demanded. Young lieutenants, boys, white-lipped, nervous, playing soldier. Pity and contempt made Tolby laugh harshly and push forward. Get out of my way. One anxiously flashed a pocket light. Halt! What's the code key for this watch? He blocked Tolby's way with his bayonet, hands twisting convulsively. Tolby reached in his pocket, pulled out his pistol, 
and as the searchlight started to swerve back, blasted the two guards. Their bayonets clattered down, and he dived forward. Yells and shapes rose on all sides. Anguished, terrified shouts. Random firing. The night was lit up as he dashed and crouched, turned a corner past a supply warehouse, raced up a flight of stairs and into the massive building ahead. He had to work fast. Gripping his ironite staff, he plunged down a gloomy corridor. His boots echoed. Men poured into the building behind him. Bolts of energy thundered past him. A whole section of the ceiling burst into ash and collapsed behind him. He reached stairs and climbed rapidly. He came to the next floor and groped for the door handle. Something flickered behind him. He half-turned his gun quickly up. A stunning blow sent him sprawling. He crashed against the wall. His gun flew from his fingers. A shape bent over him, rifle gripped. Who are you? What are you doing up here? Not a soldier. A stubble-chinned man in stained shirt and rumpled trousers. Eyes puffy and red. A belt of tools, hammer, pliers, screwdriver, a soldering iron, around his waist. Tolby raised himself up painfully. You didn't have that rifle. Fowler backed warily away. Who are you? This floor is forbidden to troops of the line. You know this. Then he saw the ironite staff. By God, he said softly. You're the one they didn't get. He laughed shakily. You're the one who got away. Toby's fingers tightened around the staff, but Fowler reacted instantly. The snout of the rifle jerked up on a line with Toby's face. Be careful, Fowler warned. He turned slightly. Soldiers were hurrying up the stairs, boots drumming, echoing shouts, ringing. For a moment, he hesitated, then waved his rifle towards the stairs ahead. Up. Get going. Toby blinked. What? Up? The rifle snout jabbed into Tolby. Hurry. Bewildered, Tolby hurried up the stairs. Fowler close behind him. At the third floor, Fowler pushed him roughly through the doorway, the snout of his rifle digging urgently into his back. He found himself in a corridor of doors. Endless offices. Keep going, Fowler snarled. Down the hall. Hurry. Tolby hurried, his mind spinning. What the hell are you? I could never do it, Fowler gasped, close to his ear. Not in a million years, but it's got to be done. Tolby halted. What is this? They faced each other defiantly, faces contorted, eyes blazing. He's in there, Fowler snapped, indicating a door with his rifle. You have one chance. Take it. For a fraction of a second, Tolby hesitated. Then he broke away. Okay, I'll take it. Fowler followed after him. Be careful. Watch your step. There's a series of checkpoints. Keep going straight in all the way. As far as you can go. And for God's sake, hurry. His voice faded as Tolby gained speed. He reached the door and tore it open. Soldiers and officials ballooned. He threw himself against them. They sprawled and scattered. He scrambled on. As they struggled up and stupidly fumbled for their guns. Through another door into an inner office past a desk where a frightened girl sat, eyes wide, mouth open. Then a third door into an alcove. A wild-faced youth leaped up and snatched frantically for his pistol. Tolby was unarmed, trapped in the alcove. Figures already pushed against the door behind him.
He gripped his ironite staff and backed away as the blonde-haired fanatic fired blindly. The bolt burst a foot away. It flicked him with a tongue of heat. You dirty anarchist! Green screamed, his face distorted. He fired again and again. You murdering anarchist spy! Toby hurled his ionite staff. He put all his strength in it. The staff leaped through the air in a whistling arc, straight at the youth's head. Green saw it coming and ducked. Agile and quick, he jumped away, grinning humorously. The staff crashed against the wall and rolled clanging to the floor. Your walking staff, Green gasped and fired. The bolt missed him on purpose. Green was playing games with him. Toby bent down and groped frantically for the staff. He picked it up. Green watched, face rigid, eyes glittering. Throw it again, he snarled. Toby leaped. He took the youth by surprise. Green grunted, stumbled back from the impact, then suddenly fought with maniacal fury. Toby was heavier, but he was exhausted. He had crawled hours, beat his way through the mountains, walked endlessly. He was at the end of his strength. The car wreck. The days of walking. Green was in perfect shape. His wiry, agile body twisted away. His hands came up. Fingers dug into Toby's windpipe. He kicked the youth in the groin. Green staggered back, convulsed and bent over with pain. All right, Green gasped, face ugly and dark. His hand fumbled with his pistol. The barrel came up. Half of Green's head dissolved. His hand opened and the gun fell to the floor. His body stood for a moment, then settled down in a heap, like an empty suit of clothes. Tolby caught a glimpse of a rifle snout pushed past him, and the man with the pillow out. The man waved him on frantically. Hurry! Tolby raced down a carpeted hall between two great flickering yellow lamps. A crowd of officials and soldiers stumbled uncertainly after him, shouting and firing at random. He tore open a thick oak door and halted. He was in a luxurious chamber, drapes, rich wallpaper, lamps, bookcases, a glimpse of the finery of the past, the wealth of the old days, thick carpets, warm, radiant heat, a vidscreen, at the far end a huge mahogany desk. At the desk a figure sat, working on heaps of paper and reports, piled masses of material. The figure contrasted starkly with the lushness of the furnishing. It was a great, pitted, corroded tank of metal, bent and greenish, patched and repaired. An ancient machine. Is that you, Fowler? the robot demanded. Tolby advanced, his iron-eyed staff gripped. The robot turned angrily. Who is it? Get green and carry me down into the shelter. One of the roadblocks is reported a league agent already. The robot broke off, its cold mechanical eyelids bored up at the man word in uneasy astonishment. I don't know you. It saw the ironite staff. League agent, the robot said. You're the one who got through. Comprehension came. The third one. You came here. You didn't go back. Its metal fingers fumbled clumsily at the objects on the desk. Then in the drawer it found a gun and raised it awkwardly. Tolby knocked the gun away. It clattered to the floor. Run, he shouted at the robot. Start running. It remained. Toby's staff came down. 
the fragile complex brain unit of the robot burst apart. Coils, wiring, relay fluid spattered over his arms and hands. The robot shuddered. Its machinery thrashed. It half rose from a chair, then swayed and toppled. It crashed full length on the floor, parts and gears rolling in all directions. Good God, Toby said, suddenly seeing it for the first time. Shakily, he bent over its remains. It was crippled. Men were all around him. He's killed boars, shocked, dazed faces. Boars is dead. Fowler came up slowly. You got him, all right. There's nothing left now. Toby stood holding his ironized staff in his hands. The poor blasted thing, he said softly, completely helpless, sitting there. And I came and killed him. Didn't have a chance. The building was bedlam. Soldiers and officials scurried crazily about, grief-stricken, hysterical. They bumped into each other, gathered in knots, shouted and gave meaningless orders. Dolby pushed past him. Nobody paid any attention to him. Fowler was gathering up the remains of the robot, collecting the smashed pieces and bits. Dolby stopped beside him like Humpty Dumpty pulled down off his wall. He'd never be back together. Not now. Where's the woman? he asked Fowler. The league agent they brought in. Fowler straightened up slowly. I'll take you. He led Tolby down the packed, surging hall to the hospital wing of the building. Sylvia sat up apprehensively as the two men entered the room. What's going on? She recognized her father. Dad! Thank God it was you who got out. Tolby slammed the door against the chaos of sound hammering up and down the corridor. How are you? How's your leg? Mending. What happened? I got him. The robot. He's dead. For a moment, the three of them were silent. Outside in the halls, men ran frantically back and forth. Word had already leaked out. Troops gathered in huddled knots outside the building. Lost men wandering away from their posts, uncertain, aimless. It's over, Fowler said. Tolby nodded. I know. They'll get tired of crouching in their foxholes, Fowler said. They'll come filtering back as soon as the news reaches them. They'll desert and throw away their equipment. Good, Tolby grunted. The sooner the better. He touched Fowler's rifle. You too, I hope. Sylvie hesitated. Do you think? Think what? Did we make a mistake? Tobley grinned wearily. Hell of a time to think about that. He was doing what he thought was right. They built up their homes and factories. This whole area. They turn out a lot of goods. I've been watching through the window. It's made me think. They've done so much. Made so much. Made a lot of guns, Tobey said. We have guns, too. We kill and destroy. We have all the disadvantages and none of the advantages. We don't have war, Toby answered quietly. To defend this neat little organization, there are 10,000 men up there in those hills, all waiting to fight, waiting to drop their bombs and bacteria pellets to keep this place running. But they won't. Pretty soon they'll give up and start to trickle back. This whole system will decay rapidly. Fowler said. He was already losing his control. He couldn't keep the clock back much longer. Anyhow, it's done. Sylvia murmured, we did our job. 
She smiled a little. Boris did his job, and we did ours. But the times were against him and with us. That's right, Toby agreed. We did our job. And we'll never be sorry. Fowler said nothing. He stood with his hands in his pockets, gazing silently out the window. His fingers were touching something. Three undamaged synopsis coils. Intact memory elements from the dead robot snatched from the scattered remains. Just in case, he said to himself. Just in case the times change. This has been The Last of the Masters by P.K. Dick. I'm Mike Vendetti. www.mikevendetti.com Production Copyright 2021 by Mike Vendetti Productions Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Evan. Hi, I'm Will. Hello, I'm Mike. And we're going to talk about The Last of the Masters, uh, Philip K. Dick's story, first published in Orbit Science Fiction, Volume 1, Number 5, which came out in 1954. Uh, ask Me How I Know, November, December 1954. Ask Me How I Know. How do you know? How do you know? How do you know that? Be because the Philip K. Dick state estate is a fucking liar. Um, so I wrote this back in 2013. Um, the Last of the Masters by Philip K. Dick is public domain. Here is the relevant passage in the Wikipedia entry. After the author's death, a non-existent story with the same title was included under the new, uh, new renewal registration number 5000019063. This created the appearance that The Last of the Masters was still under copyright protection. And then I wrote, I have a scan of that false renewal here. So this is uh, really interesting. I started writing about this back in the early teens or early 2010s. And uh, somebody went to the copyright office and photocopied all the uh, renewals uh, for the Philip K. Dick estate and sent them to me anonymously. It's like a leak, <laughs> except it was, it was public documents. And the thing is, is you can find all this information on the copyright website, but it's all digitized. It's all been OCR'd and it's, it's been processable. But to see it handwritten, them lying over and over again about when things were actually published, it's, it's like kind of shocking. So uh, I have a picture of that. And then I said, The Last of the Masters was not published in Imaginative Tales, November 1955. See for yourself here. So I had, at that time, started um, getting people to send me scans of issues of, of uh, magazines with Philip K. Dick stories in them or claims of Philip K. Dick stories in them so that I could check to see that I was not insane and to check to see that they were actually liars like like maybe it was an honest mistake but it wasn't when it happens over and over again when you know a whole year's worth of philip k dick stories from 1954 are claimed to be published in 1955 and some magazines that don't exist and some magazines that definitely do not have those stories that's called fraud but nobody cares <laughs> except for me and I guess uh, anybody who wants to listen to this story, which we have all just done. And I think, Mike, you're, are you donating your uh, your version that we just heard to this podcast so they will have all just heard it? 
Yeah, I'm donating it. I'm, I'm publishing it on uh, Audible, but uh, I'm donating it to... To uh, Jesse? Yeah, to Jesse. You're a nice Jesse guy. Have it. Just like me. Yeah. We're, we're nice yeah, guys I, together. Um, I, was thinking, I was thinking a lot about that, actually, when I was lis- re-listening to it f- uh, in your version, which I thank you very much for. I was thinking about how this is uh, what a lot of the anarchists I see on Twitter, um, and I follow a few... Uh, talk about like mutual aid, right? Mm-hmm. We all have to live in a commercial reality, a, a horrible cur- commercial reality where we submit ourselves to Jeff Bezos's reign. Um, but we also are human beings who relate to each other and, uh, we want to help each other out. So if my friend Mike, uh, wants to help me out, I'm happy to do so. And if he needs, uh, I don't know. <laughs> some publicity for his his latest uh, audiobook on Audible. I'm happy to help him there. I help him by finding public domain stories, and he helps me by reading them. Right? Yeah, it's it's been really a you know you've been a real uh, resource for me. Uh, you know, I just uh, I go to the Jesse Trove and uh, yeah, but I also go and, to the Mike Well. Right? I go to the yeah. Mike Well and I say, Hey, Mike, have you recorded this? And you say no. And then uh, notice like. You don't send me a contract that says you have to do this X, Y, and Z. There's no pledges. There's no suing. What do we need this overarching evil government for, Mike? Well, I, I don't know. You know, I, you know, I was really like the, you know, the the story. You know, the last of the masters. It is so much of it is so applicable today. Totally. You know, I really wonder if uh, you know the uh, uh, the people in the where the computer runs things, I bet they're vaccinated. It's, you know what's so weird is they're all masked, right? And and what's the mask for? It's for antibacterial masks, right? Or they call yeah. them bacteria masks. But yeah. who's the only one with the bacterial disease? Well, it sounds like they're the ones with the weapons. But if you... And I'm really interested, and I I listened to Evan's podcast on this, so uh, I'm really interested in thinking about what the world outside of this this master's domain is like. Because remember, at the beginning, he's talking. Uh, they're ta- they're talking about the village up ahead, and some farmer comes out of you know, after plowing his field or whatever, and he says, "A bunch of children came. They built a they built a uh, school for them." The, kill, the children started dying, right? And then they stopped dying, but they were going to shoot my cow, so I had to shoot shoot at them, right? This is the anarchist world outside of out of the yeah, last. Yeah, basically, domain. it was that uh, you know the uh, the doctor claimed it was the water, so they right. So they stopped up the, up the well, right? Yeah, and they but the, the kids kept dying, right? And so, well, it, it's the milk, right? And it's they, the milk. They were going to go going to go kill the cows but the farmer went out there with his gun and protected the cow but uh, eventually the kids quit dying yeah and he thinks it's because of the season change yeah but did they just get natural immunity from having the disease so much whatever it was it's it's a, it's a really interesting question and it's not answered in the story right no it's not you know it's like you know as i as i think i thought about this it's like you can have you know who, who are you going to pull for in the story? Mm, yeah, it's hard to pick a team here, isn't it? Yeah, am I going to I'm going to pull for the robot? Am I going to pull for the uh, anarchist league or uh, the people who work for the robot? Yeah, Dick can't really decide. He can't team. decide, and 
I, I um, think this what I think, what keeps it from I, being an amazing like story, right? It's it's we like to we're divi- divided. Dick's head. I'm yeah, sorry. go go no go. For no, it. you like to get into Dick's head a lot. And yeah, I was, yeah. I was trying to do that uh, a little bit when I was reading this. And I was, you know, it seems like who's the state here? Is this is the state like his wife again? You know, <laughs> telling him what to do, and he's got this kind of like this utopian dream but then he realizes like oh someone's got to like cook my dinner or something <laughs> so he can't totally decide <laughs> well i i, I certainly uh, there's a couple of points where i certainly felt the weight of dick's body one was in the opening sequence where the robot's waking up uh you know very slowly and it, it feels like it's an old tired thing right um and you know if you've ever been in hospital or you you know dealt with somebody who's been in hospital the the act of you know moving somebody out of a bed can be very difficult and this is obviously an uh, an ancient robot right but why does he make it a robot as opposed to like in the stories like Vulcan's hammer right where it's just a it's just a machine right it's just a computer mm-hmm. um the, there's a second part where when our uh, anarchist hero, what's his name? I want to say Thorby. That's not right. Talby. 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 Yeah. He, he gets the motorcycle and he says something like, um, or he, he feels something like uh, he had always wanted one to throw his weight around. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I see. You know, it's like. So, yeah, in a story like, and you compared it to a bunch of things in your podcast, Evan, like, um, uh, I think you mentioned The Great Sea, but that's not the one I'm thinking of. Um, yeah, that was a computer, too. Yeah, that was, yeah. Uh, but it, well, it was. Well, James P. Crow has the robots. Yeah, James P. Crow a little bit. Um, but this is. Well, a, I got the sense that this was just like a government robot, but when all the governments were overthrown, he like repurposed himself to yeah he was a bureaucrat he was robot still like a bureaucrat yeah yeah he wasn't a top end robot but that the, those opening scenes describing the world outside of of the interior world of this it's like a lost valley right um there's a story by hg wells called the valley of the blind um which goes with like this line though in the valley of the blind the one-eyed man is king but it it doesn't play out the same way. Um, in that story, this guy goes into the valley, finds out everybody's blind, um, and he's got he's got bodily injuries. So he, he, they treat him, but he keeps referring to things that they think don't exist, like color and uh, such. And so they do an, eventually do an operation on him to fix his his obviously fucked up brain by removing his eyes these hot things in the front of his face they're congenitally blind and the story is is it's like about hubris but here i don't i think he's very ambivalent about what he's even saying well i think you're onto something jesse there uh, with the the well story in a way and that like in different you just have different rules and mm-hmm. if you don't know the rules and you're not used to them you're not going to be as successful in that place so the point is made like they're sending armies, but who are they? There's no one to fight. It's just, and I've been thinking that actually watching later seasons of Walking Dead. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, that's a show really a very anarchistist. And the other people like fight back, and it's like, well, maybe that's not the best way to handle, you know, these guys. 
Um, what was the other thing I was thinking of about this? Oh, like a lot of recent military history, uh, you know, like traditionally when you think like, why did the Aztecs were defeated so easily by the Spanish? And it was like, oh, they Spanish had like old arguments, you know, more advanced technology or they might focus on disease. Right. But I've read some articles that said it's really because they had different conceptions of how wars fought. Right. Because the Aztecs wanted slaves. Right. So right. the goal wasn't to just annihilate and kill your enemy or they wanted people. Right. So the Spanish come in and just slaughter everyone. And the Aztecs literally didn't know what was going on around them, they, you know, on the battlefield. Yeah, you're doing it wrong. So it wasn't that the horses or certain types of weapons or guns or anything like that, that, you know, that's not, well, that wasn't the edge. The edge was just a different attitude about how war is fought. I think the Chinese and the Mongols is probably the same thing, right? Yeah, but likely. The Mongols kept beating the Chinese or the nomadic people in, in every battle, you know, for centuries. You know, one of the favorite books I did was uh, The Art of War by Sun Tzu. Mm -hmm. And uh, this guy, you know, like I I stepped on a mine in Vietnam. And that is 1965, you know, and we didn't have the, the manual or didn't have the book. But I'll guarantee you that the VC did. Right. And they had they were following what Sun Tzu laid down just right to the T. You know, they beat the French. They yeah. beat us. And, uh, you know, it's one, one line that really got me. I know I'm kind of getting off subject, but nope, no, nation, no nation has ever gained by entering in a prolonged war. And, you know, like getting out of that 20-year war in Afghanistan. I mean, mm -hmm. we. it's like, hey, I, I was, uh, what, eight years old when we were in Korea? And I'm 80 now. And we're still in Korea. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. And, that, and there's no end in sight because, yeah, because I mean, the, you know, the could, profits are not for the state right now. The profits are not for the state. They're for individuals within the state. And it's, uh, it's, it, what's so weird is thinking about where did this come from? Like, why did he say, you know what makes sense to me is, you know, in, in 1950, uh, 1953, July 15th is when he finished the story, 1953. He says, you know what makes sense to me? Um people rising up and killing their governments all over the planet. <laughs> like, it makes sense. Like, uh, I follow a, a Boogaloo boy on Twitter, and most of the time, what he says makes a lot of sense. And it's because it's, it's like, it's not that, it's not that uh, we can't have nice things. It's like, it's that they're not interested in giving us nice things. So we have to do shit for ourselves. And... I, I watched this an another amazing thing that was uh, there's a, a sort of a alternative YouTube called Means TV. Um, it's like a pay what you can or whatever sort of. It's not even creative comments. It's just like people doing shit. And there's this guy. Um, he's a great, he's a great memer. His name is Teenage Stepdad, right? Which is <laughs> pretty funny and he's not a teenager right he's just so what what does that i was thinking about that name while listening to this story what does teenage stepdad mean it means you're getting owned right <laughs> you married a girl who is married who who had a kid with someone else and you're a teenager like what happened there it's a self-own right a he's cuckolding himself in his own in his own name and in his what he does is in his show which is called seize the memes um, is he teaches people how to make memes 
and he has a philosophy behind it. So he did uh, episode five of, of, of his show is called I Has uh, Diarrhea and a Boner, <laughs> which is pretty stupid, right? I mean, it's a picture of a guy in a karate gi, you know, those karate uniforms. Um, and it says at the top, I has, or whatever bad grammar it is, um, diarrhea, and that's spelled wrong, and uh, and a boner. And the boner is spelled wrong. And he said, you know, you're going to want to spell it wrong. Because what all memer, good memers know is that if you spell it wrong, people will, the smart people will correct you. And that's called engagement. <laughs> I'm like, holy fuck, that's exactly right. I remember this back when, you know, memes started to be a sort of a thing you would see on the internet, Right. It's like, oh, yeah, that's kind of weird. I'm like, I'm not sure I understand or what the purpose of it. But they always wanted to spell things wrong. And it's because it does generate engagement, but it's not engagement from officialdom. It's not top-down. It's bottom-up engagement. And the people who I follow who do this sort of stuff are have the same sort of philosophy. So the the way the these militias work, like the Boogaloo Boys, who are anarchists, basically libertarian anarchists, whatever you want to call it, they're not in favor of government. The way they work is they use memes as sort of like a shibboleth, a kind of way to engage with each other so that there isn't uh, a leadership that can be uh, co-opted. Like, for example, with you guys probably heard of these uh, Proud Boys. Yeah. Um, okay, yeah. Prou- Proud Boys are... Um, their their leader is a FBI informer. <laughs> like it's it's a known thing that he's an FBI informer. So that group has been you know turned so that they can monitor the activity. But if you don't have a leadership where you, it's a free association, like uh, we are so, we are told this uh, what it's called the league, right in this outer world. I think one of the mistakes, uh, and I'm not sure if it's a Philip, uh, I'm not sure it's a Philip K. Dick mistake, but it's definitely a robot and a uh, civilization mistake. Um, is they call this uh, Talby guy an agent, right? They call him an agent, and he actually uses that term later on. And I'm not sure if he's using it because he's just using their term so they'll understand it. But an agent is someone acting on someone else's behalf. But if you're an anarchist, you don't act on anyone else's behalf. Well, you might still have organization. They, the Anarchist League still... He's, I mean, it doesn't mean you have no one. It, I, I, think I was thinking, like, really, think about how the Mormons go. Like anarchist theory, I don't think. Well, well, he's, yeah, more like, he's more like an operator yeah. than an he's agent. He's definitely an operator. Right? They're, they're searching out the last dates. Yeah, but who is his boss? Oh, they, they don't, they don't, doesn't mean you have to have a boss to have right. an organization. Absolutely. I mean, they clearly have an organized training camp, like that they like. Oh, they you have there's a test, right? Yeah. Yeah. So like somebody is somebody is saying you're part of this group or you're not part of this group. There's a decision making process for that. There, they're they're organized. There there is there has to be right. There has to be something, and they talk about what the test is. But notice when they go to the town and they go go to the grog bar, right, and. They're ta- they're talking to the citizens of this town. The citizens have their own idea of how the war against governments happened, 
um, the conversation goes like, one guy says, at first it happened in East Germany. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And then the next guy says, uh, and then it went into Poland. And then the third guy's like, then it was blah, blah, blah. And then said, no, it was France first, right? So they're having and a... France could survive without a government for a month. <laughs> they do it yeah, all the time. I, I, was, I was surprised that the story was from the 50s. I, I mean, right? I couldn't have been, but I was surprised the story was from the 50s because, you know, France did survive without a government for a month in 1968, right? Like, that's that's a thing that happened. Okay. Well, uh, 1792 to the height of the French Revolution. Right. Where you had... The police Paris was run kind of on anarchist grounds, right? Right. The local uh, Jacobian, the the sans culottes, you know, with their neighborhood assemblies and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, Murray Bookchin's really good on that in the the Third Revolution. But I mean, France. You know, You'd expect that's where it starts, right? That's what I. That's why I like. So why is he saying right? East Germany? Uh, obviously, you know, East Germany is not a thing anymore, other than it's part of Germany, the eastern part. Um, but it, it it seems like it's an it's an attack. It's oh, it's the Eastern Bloc rebelling against their oppressive Russian uh, yeah. dominators, right? But okay, I guess you could say the French are more communistic. That's why they're. But no, he, the story continues from the official league point of view. Is that oh, it's in the states too, right? And and it's in Russia, and it's in and last, and, right? It gets to the U.S. and Soviet uh, Union last, right? And eventually, they they're they're still on the patrol for rooting it out, root and branch. They're going to get. Rid of all government. And the thing is, is the government they have in this valley is, it's, uh, it, I think he even says it's a command economy or a planned economy, right? So, like, everything is planned by this one, essentially, guy, right? Which, uh, you know. Who's, like, very decrepit. Like, it's it's is, ridiculous. Yeah. That like part is so ridiculous. Robot. Yeah. Um, but he but, acts like a guy, too, like. Like he needs yeah, to interview yeah. the girl, <laughs> like him personally. You know, you know, one, one, one thing they did was, you know, with the purpose, you know, going to these different countries was destroying atomic weapons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's it, it make war no more, right? And yeah, yeah that, that, was, that was a big argument. thing. You know, it's kind of like the government is uh, is causing war, and we want no more wars, and we've overthrown the government, and therefore we're able to get to the atomic weapons and destroy them. Right. And, yeah, uh, there was that conversation at the end where she's like, oh, maybe they're not so bad. They had all this cool junk. And he's like, yeah, but they have war. So it's not worth it. Yeah, I think it, this whole this whole thing is like a rationalist straw man. Like, this story is not – Philip K. Dick, I, I was saying this the, in I mean, the story notes. is simply diverting, right? It doesn't – like it, it doesn't have. I don't. A, I don't know that it's simply diverting. It's definitely it's diverting. It's effervescent with ideas, but at the definitely. end of the story, you've you've been entertained. I don't think it's a very good story. Like put together, I don't think. I don't think. Like I, I feel really entertained by it. I'm very interested in it, though. Like this is not a dynamic story in the sense that it's it's engaging me. Uh, like for example, uh, there was a review of it. It's on the Wikipedia entry for this story. It said um, there was like a faux macho uh, sequence. Uh, as basically when the <laughs> I was thinking when they filmed this stupid story as a, a Philip K. Dick movie, they're going to play this up. It's taken 
right? They stole my daughter. I have a very special set of skills. And he goes after her. <laughs> and the special set of, set of skills basically be, seem to be just confronting a bureaucracy. <laughs> They've been on well, guard for 200 it, I mean, years. It's like all these soldiers are just going to do nothing now that the robot is dead. Like there's well, like they, they run around in, in, in like fear. chickens with their heads cut off. Yeah. No, but I thought that was interesting how like when he's talking to those two young soldiers at the gate. Yeah. And you're like, how is this one guy going to overthrow this, this robot? Right. And he just totally pawns them. Right. Because it's, it's again, the it's, variable, it's different rules. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like, I'm just going to walk in and shoot you if you get in my way and do what I want. And they have their rules, right? you got to show your papers. and Before we can shoot you, you have to go through the protocol right. and established by the state. And he can just hack it. So he's kind of like a little virus. And, the, and the th- they also they bring it on themselves with their, with their own agents, right? Like, they're just, they're just like searching out, sniffing around for government, these three people wandering out of the desert, right? Sniffing around for government. They show up to the town, and and the agents from this government enclave, hidden away, are actually in the bar. They hear overhear yeah. this conversation and say, "Okay, we're going to take them in the car, and then we're ki- going to kill them." Right, and that's actually what causes the collapse of this other foreign government. I mean, that sounds a lot like sort of the things that we see happening in our world today, where you've got like a. Uh, <laughs> I was thinking about getting rid of the nukes, right? This is something the United States is, has sort of a plan to do. You know, North Korea's got to get rid of their nukes before they'll be accepted into the harmony of nations or whatever the thing they're calling it today. Um, civilized nations or whatever. And Iran, of course, and Libya. What, did, what happened to Libya as soon as they gave up their nuclear program? It's like, full steam ahead. <laughs> Let's take them out. And they did. It's It's almost like... In order to, I mean, I understand the dynamic here. If you're living peacefully by yourself and your neighbors are the Mongols and they say, hey, uh, we want your stuff and you don't have an organized defense against Mongols, uh, you pretty much have to give the Mongols what, you, what they want or you're dead. So uh, there is this tension between uh, no government and the control and conscription of military units in order to uh, have a defense but how does this uprising from 200 years ago happen people just had enough they spontaneously are fed up and they go and topple governments the world over things like this have happened but they don't usually happen all over the planet right they they happen like it's almost like um agriculture Right, it's something that sort of once it hits somewhere, it starts spreading. And actually, I want to talk about that a little bit. Go for it. I want to talk about a book. Uh, I've been recently reading James Scott's uh, relatively new book called "Against the Grain," mm-hmm. subtitled "Deep History of the Early Estates." And this is stuff that he's sort of been sniffing around for a while. He's he's a political scientist who wrote mostly on Southeast Asia, but he wrote his most famous book is "Seen Like a State," which looks at like a lot of twentieth century history and how all these planned economies like fail or you know state-centered programs are kind of unstable and cause more problems in the end of the day um and he wrote a book about southeast asia which was about how the uplands of southeast asia you have these people fleeing to the hills these shatter zones right to avoid states Mm -hmm. um and so his his point was anarchism was a choice 
that, you know, basically statelessness, I should say, was a choice these people made to avoid states. But then he, he went back and he, he studied like the origins of agriculture. And he's, he thinks that like this traditional narrative in world history is that there was agriculture and then states, right, is a little too teleological. Mm. And actually you had thousands of years, more than we had civilizations where you've had agriculture. Mm-hmm. And that agriculture itself was kind of a continuity from hunter-gatherer strategies. It wasn't like a, it wasn't like the virus that landed and spread necessarily. It was a conscious choice that people mm-hmm. made and a flexible choice that people embraced and ecologies responded to, like the the cats and the dogs and yeah. the rats all joining up with them. That's kind of a ecological response to humans settling and, and, and that. But one of his key points is states need a certain kind of crop, right? And that's like grains that mature at the same time that uh, have to be stored and therefore they can be taxed, right? And can be transported relatively right. easily. Crops, most civili- most agriculture, I should say, had early agriculture was things like tubers, which mm-hmm. you can't really tax unless the tax man wants to dig up all your potatoes and sweep, you know, lay yams or whatever. Mm-hmm. You can't really tax them. They need, like, it's with rice it and It needs wheat, to be portable. Barley. It has to be portable and has to, like, a, a tax collector has to go to a farm and say, oh, you have eight acres. You should have this many bushels. I'm going to take half, right? Right. But tuber crops or uh, what's it, shifting cultivation strategies... That stuff you can't tax. Plus, it's just so hard to get in the rainforest to take that stuff. It's not worth the trouble, right? In most cases, even if you do get to tax them. So he's questioning that whole narrative. Now, why I'm bringing this up and why I was thinking about this when reading this is his model is like, we study states because that's what we have records for. Right. Right. So that's why world history, you study about Egypt. But that at the time was like a minuscule footnote in the human experience. Right. Most humans lived hunter gatherers or pastoralists or quasi hunter gatherers and agriculturalists on these, you know, in stateless societies. And it's only because the states had documents that we study them at all. Yeah. Then, then, and this that's is... like the, the world that we have here where the state exists, but it's just an enclave. So I think the anarchists in this sense are right to purge it. Yeah, eventually it, it might spread. A little Jared Diamondy uh, with the, and I, I'm I think he's got it right <laughs> with yeah. with the talking about the shape of continents and the sh- and the kinds of crops you can grow and w- when do when do the non farmers enter the picture? It's when they show up as Mongol hordes, right? They show up and take over t- territory. When do the Vikings? get into this, the records when they actually take over parts of France, right? Or are taken over, right? So, like, one of our best sources about the Gauls is Caesar. Right. right. Caesar's text. Yeah. Yeah, or uh, Caesar's text about the Germans is, is what makes Germany a United States in the 19th <laughs> century, right? The people say, hey, we are a united people. Look what he says about well, us. Those nomadic people are amazing, though. They're like, because when you read about, because I do world history, right? I taught it for many years, so I think about this stuff. But so much is given to like the Silk Roads. And you think, oh, it's China and Rome trading across the continent. Right. No, it's the Mongols or the nomadic people carrying this stuff back and forth. Right. And it's why. It's because they go to the Great Wall or what, you know, and say, we want 
grain and we want uh, silk and whatever, and we'll give you horses for your army. We'll give you milk, cheese, what, you know, whatever we can provide. And then they trade, right? It might be tributary relationships where mm-hmm. they both give gifts and one bows to the other and they pretend to be, you know, Chinese would do this all the time, right? They have tributary relationships where they would be subservient, but really the, the nomadic people had the power militarily. But then when the, whenever the sedentary civilization said, nah, we don't want to give you anymore, then the Mongols were like, okay, sorry, you had to come to this. We're crossing the Great Wall. <laughs> we're going to take it over if we need to. And that happened, what, four times in Chinese history? Mm. Four times. Mm-hmm. Where they actually just took over the whole thing. Yep. And it's, it's a really interesting relationship. It's so fascinating. Kind of stateless or quasi-stateless. I guess they, Mongols or those nomadic people would occasionally form states, but it's really rare in their history. It, but it's it, only when you form states that they have an identity too, because their cultural identity depended on them forming states. This is this right? is why, or, I, or you have you have sedentary people saying, "Oh, these people are like this," but that's because they write the books. Their real why, identity is really fluid. This is why I'm objecting to Will saying, "You know, it's it's you've you've been entertained." I'm uh, the the thing that seems to happen, right, is that I I go back and I look at at that outer world. And like, why? Why is it that the farmer on the edge of town tries to sell them water? He's got water stored under his house, and what does he want? He wants pinks. Like, or is, I was like, are those old bills? Like, old, you know, like in Canada we have fifty dollar bills that are, you know, pink, red. Uh, is that what it is, or is it pink slips? You know, like, what is this thing? Who issues this stuff? If this is, like, uh, you go into the town, they have beer. Well, the beer came from somebody getting the grain that that farmer's doing. And our anarchist uh, friend, the one who gets killed, he says, um, the what's the uh, sheep are chewing the, the grass too low, right? So there's all this stuff that seems to be just, like, just to pass the time so we learn some characters. But actually, I think it's either Philip K. Dick did it accidentally, which is possible, or it's all it's all um, part of an argument. Because, like, wh- what do they... He When he describes the town, he says, they like mech stuff. And I don't have the spelling for that. Um, but I was like, is that m- mechanistic civilization stuff? Like, that's what people want to trade for? Because they, they have a lawyer, they have a doctor, right, in town, and they, they even have some books. Wow, right? These are things that are not being made anymore. Doctors, lawyers, and books, I guess. What do you need a lawyer for? <laughs> there, yeah, there's, there's some questions. Right? Um, well, and the, the guy was talking about how he, was, he had sold a piece of real estate in, in the bar mm-hmm. he, for... For yellow slips or whatever, yeah. he was trying to give the yellow slips to the anarchists, right? And and the anarchist says, "I've never paid for anything in my whole life." And uh, you know, you can do that when you don't have money. But these slips are, are these leftovers? Are these? Um, well, how do you sell land without a state? Like you don't. I mean, without land records, it, it's a good question. And and it is intimately tied. I mean, it is intimately tied up with who owns land. Is is you know weapons? <laughs> well, I think the historical answer to that will is you 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 don't like 
I don't think there's much evidence that you had property rights without states, right? Read like I mean, the Code of Hammurabi. It's all about like brides and land and like slaves. Like but I mean, the state had to create that though that the legal structure for that stuff to even be intelligible. Like the 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 Bushmen had, um, you know, have like historical like family based rights to hunter gather on certain right. areas in the Kalahari. Sure, um, and it's not determined by a state, but you know, those aren't alienable. <laughs> you can't you can't yeah. sell them. And, and you know, it's, like, it's, it's hard like to take. Could, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. It's like you know, you you take the farmer, you know, and they were going to take his cow, but he could protect his cow. Right. And as long as you could protect what you have, it's yours. But if you can't protect it, you're going to lose it. And, and that's kind of, that's what I'm saying. Like um, these Boogaloo boys, the way they or, they seem to organize is you you start hanging out with other Boogaloo boys, right? Aren't they the ones who tried to kidnap the governor of Michigan? Uh, it, yeah. That was yeah. Except that uh, there are infiltrators, right? And the way. The the system is it, doesn't the boogaloo refer to like the coming race war? No, it's not a race war. It's it's um it's a civil war. Uh, between the races? No, not between the races. The if you if you start investigating, it's really interesting because most of the time when you hear about boogaloo boys, they're they're lumped in with the uh, proud boys because they both have boys in the name. But no, notice the proud boys spelling is proud and then boys b o y s. Boogaloo Boys is spelled B O B O B O I S. It's it's back to that idea of you know it's pretty hard to infiltrate an organization that says if your tattoos say "fuck the police." <laughs> so uh, the thing is, is when you join the group, there is no initiation ceremony. You just put on the costume and you go out and do things that those guys do, which is mostly like doing protection for black lives matters protests it's a very strange alliance yeah it's like that uh that kid that uh uh well he, he went in you know with, if he was from a different state forget what his name is but he went in with these ar-15 yeah that's he, he's killed. one of he's one of these um uh he was associated with a group and they are i'm i think his name starts with an r um but yeah, yeah. house written house yeah yeah written house um, so the guy in Wisconsin, right? So yeah. He wasn't protecting Black Lives Matter. Yeah, he was. He was shooting he was, he, Black Lives Matter. Yeah, he he was shooting them. He was going to protect the uh, the other guys, you know, the car lots and uh, stuff like that. You know, what's interesting is that you know you mentioned the Boogaloo Boys and stuff like that, but then you got Antifa. Anybody figure out how to join Antifa? <laughs> it's uh, you, yeah, you just uh, you just show up dressed in black and you have to know somebody. <laughs> um. I, I don't have the uh, Whitmer thing handy, but I can look it up. Um, uh, that one, if you start, if you pay attention to the mainstream news, like when it comes out, they have these stories, and then most of the time it fades into the background. But it turns out, you know, that was a government plot. But how do you explain Rittenhouse as a Boogaloo boy? I do not. I do not explain him. I I don't know enough about that situation. To uh, I I do know that. Um, that's my roommate coming home. I do, I do know that uh, it's controversial. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, he just opened up on people and is like a far right celebrity. Kyle, Kyle, right? Kyle yeah. House, yeah. yeah, yeah, Kyle. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know where you guys live, but I, I live in a, in Colorado, in a very, very red area. I mean, you know, I can drive by fifteen Trump signs, going to Canyon City, and, you know, it's like. Uh, we have open carry, you know, it's, there's nothing like going in a restaurant, you know, and here's a guy that you can barely, he's got real thick glasses on, but he's got a gun, you know, and it just scares the crap out of me, you yeah. know, and it's, uh, you know, Rittenhouse was, he got a hold of a gun, you know, which makes him, uh, you know, just Mr. Super, uh, you know, it, it all of a sudden elevates him to, uh, from a punk it, it, kid, from to, a uh, kid to a threat. Yeah. That's uh, that's that's the extraordinary thing, right? Is is they're not uh, the kind of protesters where they sing kumbaya. They go and they confront the police with actual firearms. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's it's hard to understand, right? Super hard to understand. But uh, so I, yeah, I, I don't I, know. I'm having a hard time seeing these people as as anarchy. I mean, they're not like. They're not Black Panthers or something like that. I don't get the sense. Well, just, I'm just looking at the Wikipedia, and you could probably disregard it as uh, it's as a, anything. A, yeah, I corruption mean, of the it's, of their uh, ideology, but it, they seem pretty right wing to me. It's good. You know? It's entirely possible. Although I, I'm not sure that the right wing left wing distinction makes that much sense when it comes to uh, some. Usually, we think of right wing having to do with weapons, right? Having to do What's, with guns? No, no, it's equality versus like hierarchy and tradition. So that seems a pretty. That's the classical, like French, like uh, Tom Paine, uh, Burke debate, right? And I, I think those categories are more or less intact. Huh. Well, I mean, but you, you know, you take a, you take a look at let, let's say the pandemic and uh, vaccinations. You know, you've got these anti-vax people, and they seem to just be in the red states. I mean, that, that's where they are really predominant. And that's where the, you know, the virus is most uh, virulent, is in these red states, you know, where they uh, say, well, you know, it's like, no, you, I'm, I'll, I'll lose my job before I get vaccinated. You're not going to give me the fauci ouchie. And you know it's it's all it's like a political thing. Yeah, it's. Um... There's definitely. There's. You're right. I think your analysis is right. That there's, once it it kind of does enter this this political, it becomes a political issue. Then you know people go kind of. They're yeah, kind of know, rational I, about it. You know, I I read something uh, day before yesterday. About you know how people will go out and uh, the anti-vax people will go out and get a uh, you know take that uh, horse dewormer, and it's like you know people Ivermectin. have to believe in have to believe in something, and so rather than believe in what the uh, quote state is proposing, they go find a source that they believe. When I you know I, I truly believe if uh, we would have had the internet in 1918. A lot of us wouldn't be here, but they can go out and find a source that they trust and will come up with a solution 
And they say, well, I'm doing this. You know, I'm taking a horse dewormer. <laughs> All right. You've well, studied this, this right, Jesse? I have studied this extensively. Um, it's, it's fascinating. So it's uh, – and I actually had this exact conversation with my friend Paul, who's not on the podcast today, um, on Twitter. Um, and it, it's, it's tough because there are forces that want to control everything about us, mostly how we – respond to them stealing our shit stealing our labor and stuff like that um ivermectin is a uh generic that means nobody makes money uh from its patent right all the all these uh uh drugs available for vaccine in north america are patented right obviously it makes sense um and And it makes sense because we live in a system that says science is not open. Science is closed and science is for profit. If we weren't under that system, it might work differently, but that's the way it works now. Given that billionaires are made out of anything you can sell to the government, and these things are being sold to governments, Government of Canada has spent lots of money on getting me my two uh, vaccine shots, um, and my mom and everybody I know, (laughs) Um, it makes sense for them not to want competition. Now, this is going to be hard to handle because it's not not in the mainstream. I'm going to put it in the text chat. It might break the file. I hope it doesn't. This is a study that I found that is a real study. It's on the NIH website, which is the National Institute for Health. It is the United States' you know, thing that studies government that studies these things. And if you scroll down a little bit and you, well, you could read the whole thing, but let's, let me read the conclusions here. This is a, what's called a meta-analysis. The title is Ivermectin for the Prevention of Treatment of COVID-19 Infection, a Systematic Review, Meta-Analysis, and Trial Sequential Analysis to Inform Clinical Guidelines. So this is like, should we study Ivermectin more? These are the studies that have been done should we spend more money on it, right? And if you scroll down to the conclusion, which is not very far down, it says, moderate certainty evidence finds that large reductions in COVID-19 deaths are possible using ivermectin. Using ivermectin early in the clinical course may reduce numbers progressing to severe disease. The apparent safety and low cost suggest that ivermectin is likely to have a significant impact on the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic globally. And if you're outside of the the mainstream thing, which it, it's on my Twitter account, I have news, sports, and COVID. And if you go to the COVID section of your Twitter account, uh, this is on your phone rather than on the website or whatever, um, it tells you that ivermectin has not been recommended by the FDA. Um, and, you know, people on, on Twitter will call it a horse dewormer, like my friend Paul did or like uh, my friend Mike just did. It is a it, it drug is that literally is literally a horse dewormer. It is also a cow dewormer. And a, uh, my friend, uh, Will, I made a joke. I said, how do they taste, Will? Because you were giving one to your dog. Right, right. right. I use yeah. it on my dog on a monthly basis. <laughs> As opposed to yourself, right? Um, because you don't um, chew, yeah, chew. I don't have worms that I know about. Right. But uh, like many, uh, you can also get horse aspirin, which is something I pointed out to my friend Paul, right? Just because uh, the guys who in, who um, 
who developed this drug won a Nobel Prize for its use in humans, right? <laughs> the fact that it is now being used on animals as well is kind of like a story. But the fact that this generic drug that any company could manufacture and could and is d- given by prescription to humans in the United States, uh, when you ask your doctor, you can ask for ivermec- ivermectin or the generic thereof. And it's not only a prophylactic against infection, it's also a treatment, as it says. And this is not like, this is not crazy out there science. This is the NIH, which is an organization that uh, Fauci is associated with. United National Library of Medicine, National Institute of Health. And this isn't a crazy old study. It's a brand new one. Came out this summer. So how come we have this idea that it's, it's, it's a terrible disease? Because there's this sort of cabal of giant evil medical uh, drug companies that are telling people you can't listen to anybody except for us. And I'm not saying that, you know, you shouldn't take these vaccines. Of course, if they are effective, you should. And it seems like a lot of people think they are. Does that mean we can't talk about other Drugs that are a lot cheaper, especially for people in countries that are not able to afford the vaccines that are very expensive and are not being made cheaper for people in other countries? No, of course not. I'm lucky um, when I uh, get sick, or like my mom got sick when she had her second COVID shot, uh, she was in hospital for three weeks, and it didn't cost me anything other than me and my time taking care of her dogs while she was in hospital. She does not have to pay the thousands of dollars it would cost for her to, you know, be ambulanced back and forth and uh, have that kind of, you know, three-week stay in a hospital is not cheap. But that's because we have, you know, a relatively decent healthcare system here. It's not great, but it is universal. And so I, I kind of have a trust that I don't think a lot of people have for. So, yeah, it, the fact that Fauci lies on TV saying you don't need masks early on, and then he says, well, the reason I said that is because we wanted to save them for the, for the frontline healthcare workers. I say, yeah, but you did lie there, right? You could have just said, look, we need to save these for the frontline healthcare workers. But instead, he said, you don't need a mask early on in the pandemic. Lie to me now, and you say you lying in the past doesn't matter. It's like, it's, a, it's just a bad chain of, like, decisions. I know we're yeah. sort of off topic, so you, I mean, but I Jesse, think that... You would, agree, you would agree, though, that, like, um, people sort of willy-nilly dosing themselves with Evermectin to prevent the um, COVID uh, is maybe not medically advisable. I, I would not think that it's a, a good idea to take uh, a dosage from an animal thing that is not for the human thing, right? Horses are much bigger than humans. <laughs> yeah, I know there have been is- issues with people like, um, be careful. you know, shitting out the lining of their stomachs and stuff oh, like well, that. Oh, well, be careful. There was a story not very long ago that was shared all over Twitter. It was about how there was a hospital that had to turn away gunshot vis- victims because people were taking horse dewormer. And a little investigation shows that that whole story was completely untrue and that all the people who were sharing it didn't do any of the research they, they, they say we should all do when looking at sources. They just retweeted it. 
I'm I'm a hundred percent pro science. Jesse is that this ivermectin has sort of become a a totem of of a certain you know skepticism that I think might be irrational. All right, tell tell me more because like, I don't well, quite if, understand if it, what you're if saying. It, if it it doesn't, this study seems low certainty on prophylactic, but higher certainty on on. For prevention serious illness or whatever, right? If you're already infected. Yes, if you're infected, it's yeah. a treatment. But that's a different issue from whether people should get the vaccine or not, or whether the vaccine should be public domain, which I think we'd all agree, obviously, it should be. Yeah. Yeah, for example, where I live, uh, my wife had, uh, you know, I, I really think she had a mini stroke, but she couldn't get in the hospital because all the beds were taken up by unvaccinated COVID patients. Yeah, it's a it's a serious problem. Yeah, and ivermectin, you know, it might it might you know like they're coming out with a pill now that uh, uh, you know works if you catch COVID, but you know you're talking about two different things. I mean, it's, actually, one is for after you get it, and one is to keep you from getting it. There, there's a yeah. Pfizer uh, drug that they're working on very quickly, and it has the same and it has half the chemical signature of ivermectin, but the difference is that one will make people money. Whereas the one that here is and already developed and is safe for humans in general, that literally one, you know, the guys who invented it or the guy who invented it, a uh, Nobel Prize. And not that long ago either. It wasn't like 30 decades ago. It was pretty recent. It's a, it's kind of what I'm thinking about what's going on in this story is like, what is a government for and why do we trust it, Right. I think it's it's not just for trading of land, right? Because look, if if Mike is my friend and he says he's going to do something, I don't need a government contract. I just need my to rely on my good friend Mike, right? But mm-hmm. the more we separate f- from each other, the more need we have for, you know, laws that apply to everybody or laws that apply in these circumstances. And then we have to have mediators and judges and all the things, sort of the arms and legs of government. What's so funny is, why do they actually need this guy? This, what's his name? I can't even remember. Boris or something like Boris, right? And I was thinking like, Boris, wow, well, that's yeah. a weird name. And even the, yeah. the uh, main character says, that's a weird name. <laughs> um, you know, why is his like name the, that? I don't know. But, you know, but it's like, you know, he, he did this for 200 years. And it's like Eagle got into it. You know, you think of a he's robot. He's not very – yeah, he's not very robot-like, is he? He's not very all-knowledgey computer-like. He's much more like a a guy who's, you know, creeping around <laughs> ladies' hospital yeah, rooms. I, 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 you know, it's, it's like Trump says, I can fix it. You know, and, and that's that's what his job is, you know, and it, it's gotten to be an ego thing with him. But, you know, at the end of the story, they uh, – uh, forget what his name is, you know, but he collects the synapse machines, which Fowler. is the robot's, yeah, the, the uh, robot's brain. So he's got. They now have the knowledge, without the uh, or the creep ego entering <laughs> into what they're doing. Uh, and, I was, was the ego originally programmed? This is like a you know. Yeah. I think Phil Dick always seems to suggest how you program robots. It's like his rule of robotics. I was working on that for a while and never quite completed it. Like the. Philip Dick's three rules of robotics, right? But one certainly is it's like the programming of the robot is not what 
the outcome will be, right? It's kind of like a monkey's paw situation. Right, right. Right, with him. And I know Asimov does look at the loopholes and the contradictions and the three laws all the time, but Dick doesn't, like, buy him for a second, you know, that how you program a a robot or a computer, it's going to change in effect, right? But at the same time, if you were to program a bureaucratic robot, wouldn't you make them that way? Wouldn't it be most effective? Why does it have to be a robot? So, so me, I'm I'm thinking like, what uh, if he was just like a DMV agent, and, <laughs> and then he's that's exactly how you'd want to program an agent <laughs> in a DMV. <laughs> and since he's the last robot, he's like, oh, I guess I gotta rebuild the state. And, and there, there are some fundamental things that are so broken about this valley. They've got these massive resources they're they're plowing into the creation of like military weapons to fight nobody, right? They they've got a surplus population that they use to spy on neighboring communities. They've got these uh, insect-like airships to, uh, you know, evac, right? And and who are who are their enemies? A guy with a stick, <laughs> a guy with an you know, ironite stick. It's kind of like it's kind of like we are right now, you know, with our massive military, and you know, Russia is getting to us on the internet. Yeah. That's a good idea. That's interesting. <laughs> those uh, those Facebook uh, Bernie's buff <laughs> memes took down the U.S. presidency. Asymmetrical <laughs> warfare, right? Uh, it, 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 there's something going on here uh, uh, that is um, broken in the in the world of of the valley. Like I don't think that the you know how I don't know where this is set. I assume it's somewhere set in the sent like set near in Mike. Virginia. Is it? Yeah, he said it's near Fairfax. Okay, well, I, I, I yeah, I guess it, there are mountains. Yeah, that's there. right because he's talking well, about escaping then to the Virginia. Valley must be, the valley must be like Appalachia, which is yeah, yeah. Where you think that that's where all like the runaway slaves and people yeah, escape your tri-racial isolates land too. Yeah, <laughs> your favorite. But they become the the state here. Um, but like, you know, you can't, you can't have a massive empire that's bounded by, you know, a few mountains. You need like resource importation and stuff like that. They're not doing that. So I I don't want to focus too much on their society, but the outside society with their pink slips, their yellow slips, the fact that everybody is still making weapons and there is this, uh, anarchist association called the League that they are acting as agents for. I, I was thinking this is much more like, um, and I think, Evan, you talked a little bit about this in your podcast on this, although you were actually mostly talking about souvenir at the beginning and you were responding to a reader uh, yeah. or a listener. Um, and one of the things you were you were pointing to is how a religious organization um, is an alternative to uh, a nation state, right? So you've got the Ca- Roman Catholic Church is dominating Europe, more yeah, more important than England. About, well, that's the other thing. Like before the modern nation state, right? So where you want to set that? I mean, this is back to the Baroque cycle. There's this wonderful section in the Baroque cycle. It's set during the reign of Louis the Fourteenth, mm-hmm. where they try to buy lumber. The French are trying to buy lumber, like from southern France, and get it to the shipyards in in the northern France, and they can't because there's all these little polities, and everyone's taking their piece uh, tax on the way. So it's actually cheaper to buy it from Russia. Right. Then, then get the lumber from France, um, and that's kind. Of, you know, until the 19th century, states were 
you've got all these different jurisdictions, religious, you know, like, there was like religious law and, and secular law, right? There were different right. things. States didn't deal with marriage. That was something the church dealt with. And, and of course, you had all these feudal obligations and, and all that. So it's, that may have been what I was talking about. Like yeah. The, well, the idea just... of, a, of one state being the own sole center of authority is so novel in our history. It's, it's, uh, but it's, it, this is something James Scott is talking about too in his book, Against the Grain, that, you know, fish don't realize, don't talk about water. And <laughs> we don't, we don't think of alternatives to the state very often because no. that's all we have, but it's novel. My favorite example of this is like the prison, like the prison is super, super novel. It, like most countries didn't have anything like the modern prison till like around World War II era. You know? you're, you're talking about China also, first experimented in prisons in like 1810 or 1910 or something. I, the school system is the one I always think of. It's, yeah, that's another example of it. Something really novel. University is way older. Can't than think the, of alternatives to it. Elementary school and the middle school and the high school. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, actually, I was thinking like, um, you know, like, remember the Children's Crusade where they literally like sent uh, like. Some guy has this brilliant idea. They're inspired by the Pope saying, hey, uh, we got to fight them over there so they don't take Jesus away from us or whatever. Huh? Whatever. They have this plan to go invade Palestine, right, and get the, the Holy Lands back from the Saracens or whatever. And, and a bunch of people, like, say, yeah, it's a great idea. And, like, they get rid of all their second sons who were fucking up their uh, division of the <laughs> lands and... and um, and then these sons are like, oh, I'm all for it. I get to kill. That's awesome. I also get to take shit. I like that. Um, I have to be a monk during the process of, uh, of traveling there. Well, okay. I guess that means I don't get to rape and pillage along the way that much. But we'll stop here in, uh, in this, this Christian city and, and rape a few of those people. But at one point, they literally like had a guy gather up children and had them off to fight the Crusades. And... This is not something that, like, a government did. This is something a guy did, right? A guy is, like, has this plan, and it, it, gets, it gets really popular. And people are like, yeah, okay, you know, this kid I can't really afford, and I don't like that kid. And, you know, go on, little Johnny, why not? This is going to get you into heaven. Um, or the way the Mormons operate today, right? Where it's not legally required that you go knock on doors in a foreign country and try and convince people to become a latter-day saint it's just what they do so the league you know you could say that the kid knocking on your door with a white shirt and a tie with another white shirt and a tied kid right beside him um (laughs) trying to convince you to become a latter-day saint are agents of the mormon mormon um church but they didn't have to do it it was just sort of you know told they were they should do it and it wasn't this particular place if they want to be LDS, they're required to do it. That's right. They are required to do it. But it isn't a law, right? Yeah. It, it's it's a non-state actor, <laughs> as they like to you call it. You can be an agent of a non-state actor. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But if you are uh, also a, a, in a league, that doesn't sound like there's a top-down thing. That's why they called it the League of Nations, right? It's, it's <laughs> Of course, the United States didn't join <laughs> – as usual, um, <laughs> the idea of of it's uh, it's a t- you know Superman is not the leader of the su- uh, superhero league, 
What's it called? Super Friends? The Justice League. <laughs> Justice League, that's right. He just happens to be the most famous member, right? It's not that Wonder Woman has to take orders from Batman. <laughs> I think they take turns as league chairman. Do there's they? Usually a, you know, yeah, there's usually a leader. Are you talking leader. about the Super Friends or the... Or the or the because I mostly know the Super Friends rather than the yeah. Justice there's League. usually a leader, um, but they like take turns as chair. Oh, what's that? What are, what are the technical differences between the Justice Society's uh, minutes taking and the Justice League's minutes take? Like, uh, <laughs> they're just on different Earths. Oh, okay, but they're one's a society and one's a league. Yeah, they, I think it was just the guy wrote Justice Society, and then he had to come up with a new idea, so he just, like, control-find the word society <laughs> and replaced it with the word league. Um, it's just, like, it's the same thing. Right. But that, it's, a, it's a team, right? They're all on the same team. They're on Team Justice. Whereas, yeah. Whereas the league, the league people are all on uh, Team Anarchist. Yeah. But, but there's probably somebody who's in charge of the examination. I don't know. I, I mean, because like there has to be because you have to get in through examination, and you can only get in if you like have yeah, a certain have version of the story. Yeah, they have an official history that bothered me. But I, I, I always wonder, like, so if I choose not to join the army, that's one thing. But if they make like. Uh, I was going to say, Jim, Mike, you were you drafted or did you volunteer? Uh-oh. I lost. Actually, I was at a hockey game, <laughs> and the guy sitting next to me said, you know, Jerry Muir's got drafted, and I was flunking out of college. So I went down to join the Air Force. The Air Force guy was at lunch, and the Army guy came up and said, uh, you know, take this test, and I test well. And next thing I knew, I was at Fort Carson. But th- th- they did have the draft. So I would have either been drafted or uh, I would have been listed. So, but there's a, the, the difference is if you get drafted, you have a choice to make. Am I going to flee from my prosecution or am I going to knuckle under and do what they say? Whereas if you volunteer, it's, it, there's, the compulsion seems a lot less, right? So like when you go to university, there's no requirement that you go to university, Right. I, I, my mom said I should go. My relatives said I should go. Um, but I had to go to school. I got in trouble when I skipped out of school. I hated fucking school. I love university. Well, you, you know, it's like, you know, like with the Army it, back then, it was, you know, if you were drafted, you were drafted for two years. If you enlisted, you went in for three years. But you had uh, a little more options it's uh yeah what they call choice not chance right and uh you know it's like uh they also had a thing they had the buddy plan and when i got to fort carson they got the, the uh, sergeant major says uh all right all you guys uh, they came in on the buddy plan raise your hand and says okay now turn around shake hands with your buddy because you're not going to see him for six weeks <laughs> you're uh you're both at fort carson but that's it right so, and uh, but you know it's you you did it, make you did make a choice there and I, I I'm I'm much into the idea of do we all actually have any choices in this life but I, it feels like we do sometimes especially when you're being forced to do something you don't want to do right uh, uh, yeah it's like not, uh, like get a get a shot or lose your job 
Oh, yeah, so that's a great a, example. Or very few people have a choice whether to be part of a state anymore. Like that's Scott's exactly right. I'm born For into this state. In history, there were options. Even if there were states, you could flee them or get outside of their their ta- their taxable radius. You right. know? Like, like so far, that was efficient for them to collect taxes. So you just go right across the line, then they'd leave you alone. And I don't know. Are there options now? If you, if you live in like the Amazon or something, yeah, yeah but fewer and fewer choices for those people as well. They're they're but, being actively um, incorporated into states now. Yeah, I mean, and it's, like, really inconvenient if you're not a member of a state these days, right? Like, you don't have, like, rights. Like the Rohingyas, stateless yeah. people or whatever. Oh, yeah. Like, you don't want to end up like that. Let me, let me read uh, this section. This is, this is one, one of the ones I'm talking about. And I, I think it's really interesting to think about Tolby and Borisors being the mirrors of the two societies because they're both big, right? I, at least I got the sense that Boris was huge. Um, yeah. Uh, Tolby's massive body straightened eagerly. Where? He shielded his eyes. By God, he's right. A village. And it isn't a mirage. You see it, don't you? His good humor returned, and he rubbed his big hands together. Everything's big about him. What what say, Penn? A couple of beers? A few games of throw? (laughs) With the local peasants? That's an interesting word. Maybe we can stay overnight. He licked his thick lips with anticipation. Some of those village wenches. His daughter's standing right there. <laughs> the kind that hang around the grog shops. I know what you mean, Penn broke in. The kind that are tri- tired and uh, tired of doing nothing. Want to see the big commercial centers. So they have commerce, right? They, have, they come from cities. Not from these peasant areas. Want to meet some guy that'll buy them some mecco stuff. And take them places. What the fuck is mecco stuff? Look, it sounds to me like it's something that's made mechanically. Yeah, you know, something from the ancient were, days, or is it something that's modern factories? Well, it seemed like I, I got it uh, somewhere that you know it, uh, you could have things that were made by machine, as right. opposed to uh, hand sewn and falling apart. They talk about what's in, in just up ahead in the village here. I'm going to read this section. Uh, this is right right after what I just read. Um, at the side of the road, a farmer was watching them curiously. He had halted his horse and stood leaning on his crude plow. So his horse is something he made on his farm, or his dad made on his farm, or his grandpa made on his farm. And the crude plow is something that he made on his farm. Hat pushed back on his head. What's the name of this town, Tolby yelled. They're not in the town yet, right? The farmer was silent a moment. He was an old man, thin and weathered. This town? He repeated. Yeah, the one ahead. That's a nice town. <laughs> the farmer eyed the three of them. You been through here before? He's not answering the question. No, sir, Tolby said. Never. Team breakdown? So why are they on foot? Because they're pilgrims, right? They're spreading their religion or whatever. No, we're on foot. How how far you come? About 150 miles. I'm like, is he a, an agent for this uh, other civilization? No. He's just acting like it, right? The farmer considered the heavy pack strapped on their backs, their cleated hiking shoes, dusty clothing, and weary, sweat-streaked faces, jeans and canvas shirts, ironite walking staffs. And I want to find out what those are. That's a long way, he said. How far are you going? As far as we feel like it, Tolby answered. Is there a place ahead we can stay? Hotel? In? How are they going to pay for it? They don't know what money is. So are these anarchists 
like a de facto government in that if you it's like they have weapons they they go where they feel like it they don't have to pay for things well you know you, you see there's part of it that they you know like the the girl that was impaled by the branch right says well you know they they set us free right you know it's and, propaganda and we, we owe, in a certain sense we owe right? them because they set us free and we have to uh, you know, and these couple of guys says, well, why don't you leave the girl with us for a few minutes? Right, right. And, you know, instead of this big, huge guy, Tolby, you know, beating the crap out of this guy, you know, said, we don't pay for anything. Yeah. And he, he, then uh, very next scene, he says, um, um, two lank men approached them from an open doorway. Who are you? What do you want? They stopped and got out their identification. So they are agents, right? The men examined the sealed plastic cards. Wow. Photographs, fingerprints, data. Finally handed them back. Al, one said, you really from the... An- uh, Al is A-L, right? Capital L. Mm. One said, you really from the Anarchist League? It's, it's kind of like, almost like a contradiction, right? Not quite. That's right, Tolby said. Even the girl? The men eyed Sylvia. That is one of Philip K. Dick's most famous... Uh, usage he uses that name over and over again most famously in one of his best stories um, Upon the Dull Earth where his mm-hmm. girlfriend yeah. is a witch kind of and it's like forest right and uh, by the way there's another guy named Penn here Penn and Sylvia Pennsylvania right? mm. anyways um, with even the girl the men eyed Sylvia isn't she like a teenager that's what I'm getting right yeah. Uh, with languid greed. Tell you what, let's have the girl a while and we'll skip the head tax. How can you have a head tax if you don't have a government? Don't kid me, Tolby grunted. Since when does the league pay head tax or any other tax? He doesn't say what is a tax. He just says we don't pay it. So there are governments everywhere, right? It's just that it's like, they're so small that nobody cares. Because the league... It's like the- it's like the league is the government now. If, if they're not subject to these laws, right, then they are. So I think it's, it's, it's like that's why at the end when we feel so ambivalent about, you know, which society is better. Well, at one point, Bors says, hey, I'm so paranoid right now. Kill everyone on the suspicion list. Like, just go shoot them. Lock them up. I think he says kill them too, right? He, there is a there is a lockup, oh, okay. and there's a there's both, right? But his paranoia is like increasing, and he's you know he's paranoid about his body servant. He's, but he's like, what does he even need to move for? He's he's a, a computer, but he has a personality. So it, yeah, he sleeps. <laughs> he seems to sleep, right? And he he has an office. He has a desk. It's so weird. <laughs> Well, you know, it's it's like you were talking about the Proud Boys, and it's they they seem to have the attitude. It's almost like the Anarchist League. I agree that you know nobody nobody's over me, but because I'm a Proud Boy and I've He's got uh, my AR-15 and uh, you know all these weapons, I can go any place I want and get what I want. The difference, I think, I, I don't think the Proud Boys are armed. I think that's actually what they have is they actually have the cops on their side. It's kind of it's it's kind of weird. The 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 Proud Boys are not. Uh, they have weapons, but they don't have guns. 
but they're pro-cop. Whereas the, the Boogaloo boys are anti-cop and are armed. It's a very mm-hmm. weird situation. Like, it, it's, it's just sort of a... Like, if you looked at it as a macro view, looking, looking way back from a historical perspective, it's like you'd say, look at these groups sort of, um, you know, acting strangely. And you would include things like uh, the Weather Underground and uh, um, the Black Panthers and all, all well, of these, or even the KKK is, is kind of like, these are organizations where the government isn't doing its job properly because these organizations are useful to the government or they are the, there as a reaction to a lack of good government. And it's not like yeah, Canada you know, what, doesn't what, have these, but I, I think like I, I keep, I, I mentioned this to my friend, um, Eric, I was saying, you know, if you look at the history of, of Switzerland, they haven't been in a war in 200 years. They're surrounded by countries who are not their allies. There's literally a valley or a series of valleys, right? They don't have a common language. They have not been attacked uh, even by the Nazis. And yeah, sure, they have, you know, bad immigration policies. They don't let people immigrate. And sure, they, um, they took Nazi gold or whatever. And sure, they did... You know, they just allowed marriage between uh, homosexuals um, just like this year, right? But they also, their only natural like mining resource is salt. That's the only thing that's mined in this country. And they have a huge standard of living. So it's like if your government is sort of acting as like an insurance company that isn't trying to rip you off, <laughs> it's almost like you could have a, like a, a decent living. But what is this Mecco? civilization a top-down controlled by a, a decrepit robot bureaucrat do he's like we're building armies we're building chem weapons we're building bacteriological weapons i gotta get my resources out there and start probing the territory borders for spies something's wrong on both on both sides of this mountain range right that's why i don't yeah. think we can we can pick a team because n- neither is good but one is definitely more top-down, fuck, fuck you over uh, recently, and the other one is more like, geez, we're suffering from plagues that seem to come randomly, and then roving gangs of people who want to shoot my cow. Mm-hmm. You know, what? one thing you didn't mention was the Oath Keepers. Yeah, tell me now about that, them. I don't know anything about them, really. Well, the Oath Keepers are like, you know, you've got cops. You've got former military that are in this there. This is like the border border patrol supplement guys. Well, yeah, it's, they're kind of. I don't know. Maybe somebody else can help me out on this, but it just. Uh, I'm looking it up. They, I really, you know, like, I, I live in a small town, and we've got uh, a uh, special forces motorcycle club downtown, and I'm sure a lot of these guys are. Oath keepers, you know, like you, you take an oath to, uh, it, it, it's so strange. They come in, in and try to keep the peace during, like, they're like there to protect property during protests and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Keep it's, the uh, peace. My, I don't want to use their language necessarily, but, um, uh, you know, it's guys who are very familiar with firearms mm. who are in an armed organization. Um, that's, uh, I mean, has a, like, kind of paramilitary nature to it yeah um, mm-hmm. yeah. um then you also get the the around here we have the three percenters who are like you know yeah. 
um, a sort of similar thing, but a little bit, you know, they take anybody. Um, you don't have to be like police or military. Yeah, it, it, that's what that's what's so interesting to me about the Boogaloo Boys, as opposed to the other other groups, is the 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 way you get in with them is you meme. Like if you look at what they're wearing, they're wearing they wear a um, a Hawaiian shirt, and then they put all this like military gear that's the same co- that the cops are wearing, like night vision goggles, and 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 where in place of the patches that say you know. You know, uh, the blue f- American flag with the blue stripe on it, right? Or the um, uh, the name of their unit. They put on their own memes. Like, they're like, and they're, they're weird. Like, <laughs> they're not, they're not trying to be um, consistent. Like, everybody wears the same uniform. It's almost like, it's an anti-uniform. It's an ironic uniform. And the difference is, is it's the, it's the it's the weapons, right? So uh, the motorcycle gangs uh, sort of... I studied this because it's really interesting. We have um, Hell's Angels around here. Um, and uh, my, in my dealings with Hell's Angels, they seem to be just guys who like motorcycles a lot. <laughs> I know that they, are, they have been involved in drug trafficking and uh, obviously some gun violence uh, is associated with that. Um, but I... I you know, I haven't studied the local group <laughs> that much, but what I can tell you is, like, they they do tend to like Mike was saying about these um, these uh, ex special forces guys who are on bikes. They are ex military, right? When when you're talking about the Hell's Angels or the other groups, they tend to be ex bomber pilots. Is the is the idea in the start? And obviously, that's not the case uh, throughout throughout their whole history because but they have a, a similar methodology to keep non-members from joining right the way and if you've seen that show uh that's sort of a fictionalized version of of uh the hell's angels um they you don't just say hey i want to be hell's angels you hang around hell's angels and then the, your rank is a hang around it's basically yeah. you help out, right? And then as you become more trustworthy, they allow you to wear a rocker, right? A, a little thing on the back of your thing. And then yeah, a patch. A patch. Uh, but to be fully patched is like you've gone through a, a sort of weird set of initiations. Mm-hmm. And there have, have you have you read Undercover and Alone? No. Tell me about it's, it. It's it's uh it's a uh i don't know if it's written by but it's by a a cop who infiltrated a motorcycle gang mm-hmm. you know and and it just really gives you the uh you know how this structure works what mm-hmm. they go through to be accepted you know he's just talking about uh he he had to write when he was first trying to get in he had to write at the back of the pack you know and he had this crap falling off the broken down motorcycles and stuff but uh you know, you work your way up, and I mean, he was actually a cop, and uh, yeah, I'm reading. Uh, it was. It's uh, called "Under and Alone." It's by William Queen. Yeah, there you go. There you go. He it's infiltrated really a, the Mongols. It says. Yeah. Which is uh, fascinating. Yeah. So uh, the reason uh, it, lo- it looks like he was an ATF agent, right? So that's um, uh, alcohol, tobaccos, and mostly in this case, firearms. Although mm-hmm. alcohol and tobacco are also trafficked across borders but it's the firearms that they tend to 
be known for. So uh, the idea here is like the reason you have those exclusionary measures is not just because you you uh, don't trust the cops and they're always trying to infiltrate you, which they are. <laughs> it's also because um, you need to be on our program. And to do that, you can't just be anybody. You have to mm-hmm. be someone we can trust and somebody who's... You have to know the real history of the Anarchist League. Hey, that's and kind of... Yeah, like, right? And that's you, have ki- to study, you have to study in our camp and like learn all these things. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, like... I don't know why Phil K. Dick wrote this story. I have no idea. He isn't cheating I just think on it was his a wife. Fun story. I mean, I think you might be... There's a lot of interesting stuff in this story. It's effervescent with ideas, but... It is. It, it might just be like... There's, there might not be a point to it. Well, just, uh, just uh, the, the way I want to uh, point out why that doesn't, isn't quite enough is this is a really fucking weird kind of story. Like, Philip K. Dick's stories tend to be very odd compared to other science fiction stories. When, whenever I s- send Mike a Philip K. Dick story, it, it pops in his brain in a way that other science fiction authors don't. You know, Paul Anderson wrote some good science fiction. But they, they're nothing like this, right? They're more like science-based, whereas this is more like politics. And like, what's our relationship with, with other humans? And, uh, and you know. this is really, this feels a lot more creative than a lot of science fiction. I, oh, super creative. Super creative. But it's, it comes out of something, some sort of, you know, worry. What, d- didn't I send you, Will, a tweet about, or maybe you sent it to me, about uh, FBI uh, letter Philip K. Dick wrote to an FBI agent uh, ratting out one of his friends. Yeah, like somebody he's, who was like a big advocate for his work. Right, um, a bootlick. He's he's a bootlicker, is what I call them, right? Because he's he likes the taste of boot because he likes the uh, so he has that nature in him, but he also who, who, is, who is he ratting out again? Uh, it was a member of uh, like a, a famous communist in the United States. Do you remember this? No, Frederick not. Jameson. Frederick, Frederick Jameson. Jameson. That sounds right. And what I find so fascinating about that is like Frederick Jameson is the the guy who he's why academics talk about Phil Dick nowadays. He was the first to say you literature people should pay attention to this guy. And, and he, uh, he it was, worked. Dick was really worried that Stanislaw Lim was becoming popular and like that this like Polish author was going to like bring communism. He saw the competition, I think. I mean, yeah. <laughs> he he's he's an incredibly weird guy, right? So all those worries about his girlfriend uh cheating on him, that's largely because he's thinking about cheating on her, I think, right? <laughs> it's not just a one-way thing. It's like, it's projection. So uh, we have two sort of weird characters in this. Uh, one is Tolby and the other is Bors. Um, but th- the way the daughter's described, it's kind of creepy too. It's like, it's almost from Tolby's perspective. And we're sort of seeing how her legs are all sweaty and her boobs are sweaty. Uh, <laughs> if Marissa were here, I would point out, you know, the when they go into that bar, um, there's like an old piece of tech that's still working and it it just sort of shows random images and one of them is of a woman and then it uh, zooms in uh so she's just one big breast it's like yes why is that in there it's because that's what that whole thing on the wall is philip k dick's brain (laughs) it's it's what he's thinking about and so why why is she named sylvia 
I guess because there's trees around and he knew a lady named Sylvia and he loves the name Sylvia. But why did he, well, why is it a daughter? It's, is it because he's trying to make it a movie so Liam Neeson can play the character and go after the daughter? Uh, these uh, the, This set of style of stories that he wrote, where it's an uh, action set piece almost, I think are his worst stories, but they are the most translatable to film. It's just like, what if you were going to make this into a movie today, what kind of message would it send? It, it, it's so conflicted. I have no idea what he's trying to say, other than, hmm, I'm a, I have a problem with governments. And also, I have a problem with no governments, because they'll be governments too. Like, that's a weird like, idea to try also, to sell. Also, they won't deal with, like, public health properly. Clearly. But, uh, you know, uh, uh, what, do you make of the, what do you make of the heat? They, they talked about the summer heat hurting people. Um, maybe that was causing the children's deaths, right? And then when they're walking into this desert, it seems like, it's, they're complaining about the heat, too. Now... I've been hot. I've been out in the sun. But you don't usually, uh, at least in the 1950s, you don't usually say global warming is the, uh, the reason why it's getting so hot and we're all going to die from that. Um, are these like, are the diseases that are still killing people 200 years la- later from the government's warring? Or are they being released by the mech- mechanic, mechanistic society that's hidden in the valley? Or if it's Philip Dick, he just wrote it in the summer and he was complaining about the heat. <laughs> just like the wallpaper, that ugly wallpaper that is it Boars wakes up to. Mm. Yeah, that that was really like, weird. That that's it his is. wallpaper. That's his wife put up that wallpaper. Uh, yeah, and he hates it. <laughs> <laughs> the, the psychoanalyzing of Philip K. Dick goes on. <laughs> you know, you know, you know. We think about it, but like. Uh, this is how these guys made their living. They had to write something, you know, and I would just wonder how much thought he put into this as opposed to, you know, just, you know, like, uh, other writers that, you know, that, uh, you know, just wrote something and like, uh, Edgar Allan Poe. I mean, you know, just, he had to keep writing stuff to what sell. What I find interesting about alive. this story is, Dick, at this time, and throughout his career, really, he's mostly writing about states and some resistance to states. But he seems primarily interested in how these societies function, right? And he experiments with a lot of different types of states, like Mm -hmm. the reactionary moralistic state. What was that, the man who japed? Mm -hmm. Or the kind of quasi-fascist one in the world Jones made? Mm -hmm. Yeah. the random solar lottery. Yeah. yeah, random. He's playing with all these different governments that are that are flawed in some way, and you know that, of course, continues here with Boers being kind of a ridiculous uh, leader. But it, that's why I'm interested in this story. Is it's the only example I can think of where he really tries to describe an anarchist world. Yeah, and yeah, I can't think uh, of any other examples. Where I he think does. he kind of. I'm really interested in how states stomp on people. One of, one of the things you said on your podcast was um, anarchism need not be like a goal as much as an opposition, I think. Is, yeah, tension. Yeah. yeah, so like um, people <laughs> there's a meme that says, I see you, uh, I see you uh, complaining about capitalism, and yet you live in a capitalism society, some guy coming out of a dumpster or something yeah. <laughs> saying this. Um, yeah, I do. <laughs> I do. Um, 
if you if you say Jesse, what, what's your ideal political state? I'm like, I, that's really hard question. Uh, but I know the one that we're not we're all suffering in is not the ideal one because we've done things better in the past and can do things better in other countries. Uh, you know, in terms of like not fighting wars that were really stupid to begin with, right? Why why did we do that? That was really stupid. We shouldn't have done that. Um, the reason we did it, we know now, is because it made some guy really wealthy and he wanted to prove something to his dad. <laughs> Whatever it is. Really di- ridiculous ideas. You know, we got to expand the empire and I got all these pressures and they give me money. And more importantly, you know, I, I'm i in this position and I need to do, you know, there's explanations. But uh, I, I, I was mentioning this to Mike before when we were talking earlier today. Um I like the idea of the way pirate... Maybe I didn't mention this to Mike. I was thinking about it, maybe. Oh, the way pirate ships are run, the way this podcast is run. I'm not the captain. I'm just sort of the quartermaster saying, you know, okay, if you want this and you want that, okay, we can do that. And, you know, if somebody fires a shot across my bow, I'll, I'll steer the ship away. <laughs> but uh, if you took my ship away, I'd just, you know, go swim and find another ship to steal and... I can't. I can't make anybody do anything, right? So I'm not trying to be a leader, but there has to be uh, some organization. But we we do that ourselves. I I was listening to, um, and I keep telling Evan to watch it, but I don't think he has yet. Blake Seven, because Blake Seven is about a prison break from a 1984 slash um, Brave New World style society where they drug you and they lie about their history and they do it all in this in the name of empire and control and the prison break is they you know they're sent off to the prison planet and accidentally stumble across a sherwood forest that's a spaceship that allows them to act like robin hood and and they never take any orders from the guy who's the name of the show he's not the captain of the ship that they're on they make decisions not because somebody said that's a good idea uh and you're my captain so i will follow your order but rather well i don't want to do it or yeah i guess we have to because i can't think of anything better and when they don't agree they don't even vote over it it's just sort of you know it's the way a family is run is the father the leader of the family we sometimes say the head of the family right uh, but what makes him the head? Do we have an election? No, he's just older. And if we disagree with him, we might go live with mom for a while. <laughs> There's no, it's not a democracy. No, I, I think where I would challenge that a little bit is if you do look at early states laws, they're really interested in making fathers and, and husbands the head of the family. I mean, but, they, but why did they do that? Issue. Uh, maybe there's like a feminist interpretation in here. If that wasn't an issue, if if men weren't feeling insecure in some way, you wouldn't have had laws to to get into to prop that up. You wouldn't need all those Levitican laws saying, you know, if a if a what's it if a woman is if a girl if a virgin is is raped, you pay off the husband. You would pay off the father. Right. 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 Laws like that wouldn't have to exist if there wasn't anxiety about. Man, like men not having enough power within the family and trying to actually seize it. But when we compare that to a place like uh, Tahiti, 
right? Yeah, uh, that's we have a situation where accounts were are pretty wild in that regard, where they would come in and not understand what's going on, right? The matrilinear I, system is is n- not uncommon amongst uh, amongst uh, so-called primitive societies, right? But not in all the major river valley civilizations and the societies that evolved from them. <clears throat> is that because they're doing more more uh, agriculture? <laughs> Well, I think it's about property. I mean, this is yeah, it's related, right? Once you, you have once you have something to pass on to your son, whether it's a title, land, something uh, scarce gold, though, not knowledge. Yeah, something scarce that you can pass on to your son, right? Then paternity certainty becomes a problem, and because you know who your mother is, but who can say who their father is really unless they go on Maury Povich? That's a yep. reality yep. TV. Show that's a, that's a good joke. You were, you were making a good joke, Evan. Yeah. And Jerry and so Springer. marriage, and then say, like the bloody sheet stuff, right? With the blood on the sheet on wedding night, that nonsense. Mm-hmm. This obsession with virginity, this, uh, the veil, right? You know, if, if women go out and show their face, they're going to seduce all the men, right? Mm-hmm. It's all about paternity certainty, which is connected to property. And if you don't have property, in that sense, then then you don't need marriage. Mm-hmm. That's that's my interpretation. Maybe it's it's informed by a bunch of my own neuroses. And no, no, I think that's right. It's just we've got this Tolby guy who seems to he has a daughter who he brings with him on this pilgrimage kind of quasi mission thing. Um, he says he never pays for anything when he goes to the bar and he tells people how it is. He says my glass is empty. Fill it up. Yeah. Right, and then they do, and he gets to go. He thinks he's going to go for a ride in a car, which is a pretty odd thing these days when most people are driving horses, right? In this western town, and uh, it turns out that they had ulterior motive, but it didn't phase him at all that people would offer him a ride in a vehicle and that they could stay the night in his, in their downstairs of their house because he's like a occupying army in a certain sense. But they don't show up very often, so. Yeah, it's like the Anarchist League actually runs things. I, I mean, think they, that's they, right. They have, they have power. I think that's right. And so that, uh, like, uh, 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 bringing it back to the malicious thing, a lot of the, you know, reason U.S. is so big on mali- the word militia is because it's in the Constitution, right? Or mm-hmm. the Bill of Rights or whatever. Um, <laughs> um, my as my friend Paul would say, the the thrice damned Second Amendment. <laughs> I'm like, oh wow! But it's weird to have a podcast without Paul. Oh, talking about a fellow K Dick story, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I hope he's doing okay. He's well, fine. I often think of like the mafia in this this regard because maybe less so now, but I think to some degree it's still true. But certainly with when you you know in the early nineteenth early twentieth century when you had all this immigration from southern europe the the mafia did kind of form a state right in cities it provided jobs it it taxed you know territory right it had its own little military and of course they that do the lottery taxed, too right that's back to this you need to have the central like this obsession with centrality and that all all power must come from one place right maybe you you have a federal system, maybe, but still, all power is sort of centralized. Um, you know, but gee, it's like you have a 
Uh, one time I said to one of my aunts, you know, because this dear, you know, she was, my grandparents were Italian immigrants. And I said something about the mafia. And she said, you know, Sepik mafia, you know, and it's like this, the mafia was kind of like this little side government. That, uh, yeah, it is. Wasn't, uh, wasn't really visible, but it was there. Like the KKK and so forth. Mm-hmm. You know, it's there. And you could turn to these people and. Or Hamas is, you know. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. They, would, they would help you, you know. And it's, uh, it's like a government uh, in the, you know, beside the government. Yeah. I, I think I've told this story before, but I will just recount it briefly again. Uh, the one time I had to call the cops on a non, the non-emergency number. Uh, it was about a tip that some lady in my building says, like, who stole some stuff out of my storage locker? And I called the, them, and the, the the lady answering for the RCMP, who are literally, like, you know, nearly spitting distance across the street from me here, um, she hung up on me. And I'm like, you don't hang up on me. I'm a fucking taxpayer. So I called her back, and she hung up on me again after, you know, I'm like, this is your responsibility. I got into a really heated argument with her, saying, no, you need to investigate this. I'm a fucking citizen. <laughs> I have a tip, and I shouldn't go over to that lady's ho- the the person's house and s- accuse them and in- investigate their house to see if my stuff's in there, right? And one of the things I pointed out on the tape—it's pretty funny because I eventually did get an apology, um, uh, and they came and investigated. Uh, less important than the apology was the investigation. Anyways, um, I uh, just in the news there had been a story about a uh, there's a. Uh, drug gang or whatever it's called um it's i think it's called the uh yeah it's the un gang because it it's non-racial it's just whatever you know gangster you happen to have gone to high school with you're in the gang if you're one of those guys so they're you know indians and white guys and asians and whoever's in it's the un gang right united nations gang um it's like it's like the enterprise yeah, kind of like the Star Trek Enterprise, except a criminal organization. And they, uh, I, I was like, do I have to call up? And I had the, you know, the name of the guy at hand, and the, I knew where he lived because it was published in the paper. Do I have to call him up and ask him to do the investigation? <laughs> because what are my options here? If the RCMP won't do the investigation, I can do, go do it. And they say, no, you don't do it. So they wanted me to ignore it. Well, you know, they're short on manpower or whatever. No, you fucking do your job. Um, if you don't have services from government, you will do whatever you can to help yourself. It's just what we do, right? But if we turn on each other as human beings and not turn on the government, that's also a mistake. The, the keeping us divided part, right? Keeping, uh, you know, playing up the idea of it's race. Racism is the most important problem in the United States today. That's a way to keep the class, which is the poor people, almost everybody you've ever met, right, from being on one team against the rich guys who are stealing everything from us. That's the real problem. And government should be like an insurance company that you never think about and don't pay very much into. That's that's basically all they need to do. And, yeah, that includes some border uh, uh, prevention of invasion. But it doesn't include overseas adventures uh, very often, or shouldn't, because that doesn't really profit 
you as a people protecting it tends to hurt people who you want to protect. Anyways, I, I, I just think Philip K. Dick is not a very wise man, but he is a really interesting thinker. And that's why reading a story like this is like, it's so different from almost any other author you can think of, except for maybe like Lem. But, you know, he's also di- di- thinking different things. But you can see the, the very sparky brain, right? It, it somehow works as a story, even though it's a really bad story. But it's really Definitely. interesting. Have you read a lot of Philip K. Dick before? Well, I don't, I don't think you have, have you? Yeah, I think I've just read some, is what I would say. Something from Planet Stories? No, I mean I've read uh, I, I've read a couple novels um, here and there. Um, what's the one? And like, uh, can't remember the names of all of them. I've read one of his mainstream novels. Um, I've read some of his science fiction novels. I've done some on this show. Hmm. His um his short fiction is is quite different, I would say, than his novels in general. I mean, sometimes they're just fix ups, but. They they tend to be the pretty crappy ones, and I know um, I know Mike's read a lot, and obviously Evans read a lot. Well, see, all my stuff was these short stories. I haven't done any of these uh, longer things. Uh, but uh, yeah, the the first novel I read by Dick was "Now Wait for Last Year." That's a good book. Oh, that's great, man! Really, yeah, it's kind of similar and. Some uh, some respects, but uh, yeah, you much have the, more competently put together. You have the decrepit leader. Yeah. Yeah, what's so wonderful about Now Wait for Last Year, Boars isn't this, but the mole is essential and decrepit. Like, he is keeping this house of cards together through his decrepitude, which I think is a wonderful idea. Mm-hmm. Now, especially since like the U.S. has been kind of governed for a while by decrepit people <laughs> competent people but somehow it holds together i think that's the new normal is we're gonna have a like um it is kind like of funny I, septuagenarian president from here on in i was thinking like was was eisenhower like really ill that week he decided to write this story <laughs> like, well why is uh why is he writing this like why why is why is this character so it, it seems to be like kind of a criticism of a co- command economies like Soviet Union and stuff, but it isn't really. I don't. Uh, I think it, 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 it's like a criticism of. I mean, it's certainly a criticism of the like Cold War buildup on definitely. both sides. He has por- yeah. a story called Project Plowshare, which is all about the idea of, and that got turned into the Zap Gun. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's an interesting book. It's interesting, but um, it's like he's heard this term, you know, plowsharing your weapons. And he like <laughs> he just took it off into cloud cuckoo land. So, Will, have you read that one, Zap Gun? The Zap Gun. No, yes. I it's haven't. One of his first so, novels. They have a military-industrial complex, but the, well, they really just develop the weapons, and they have magazines that are of all the new weapons that come out. But then there's this committee, a randomocracy of best consumers, like whoever's the best consumer, you know. So I guess it's not really random, but they just take from the population and draft these people. To be what are called commodities, commodity, some some weird word I forget what it is, mm-hmm. but the root is kind of commodity, and they turn all the weapons into toys and yeah, appliances. and there's a there's a comic book in it that informs. and that's how they're actually produced as they're not actually produced as weapons at any point. It's they're crazy. just developed. 
Which is kind of, you know, like... It's a good it's, idea, actually, I think. Well, it's how the F-35 is, right? It's, it's something that is not deployed, right? It's just... Or M1 Abrams. Last time they used that was in the Afghan war. No, Iraq war. Second Iraq war, right? And it, it only took like 15 minutes of that. And then the rest the thing is about jeeps. perception here. Like, we know, of course, the U.S. creates all these weapons of war and distributes them around the world and uses them and all that. But in a... Think of it from Philip K. Dick's point of view. It's like, you know, I haven't actually seen these things in action. Maybe I've seen a model or I've seen them on TV or something. Mm-hmm. So from your perspective as just a person, you know, it is just stuff in magazines and stuff in books that you read about. Mm-hmm. What, what's in your life are commodities. Are, is the microwave? Is the stove? Mm-hmm. And, and, of course, the microwave came out of uh, a war tech, right? It's a radar. <laughs> they noticed that hey, uh, when we have these guy, these guys who are uh, doing radar, they can stand in, in front of these radar dishes <laughs> and warm up. <laughs> so fucked up. <laughs> they warm up on the cold, cold e- October evenings during World War II and get warm under the microwaves of the radar dish. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I used to call them radar ranges when I was a kid. The radar yeah. range. Wow, back in the old days. Yep. Are we done? We may be. Yeah, I, I don't think have so. To say about it, unless, unless you want to hear about the other things I've read by Philip K. Dick, and sure, but I don't really feel that that's necessary. Why not? Hey, it was really nice meeting you guys. Yeah. Uh, Thanks for your time, Mike. Yeah, thank you. Well, Thanks uh, for reading you know, it too. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it's uh, Jesse has the link. So uh, oh yeah, I'll spread wanna... I'll spread that around. Um, and uh, can you wait like seven months for this come, to come out, or should I put it out like next week? It, it, we no, will have it, had two dicks in a row. I I don't know. You know, it's uh, it's up to you. Oh, I'll, uh, I'll wait. I'll, I'll wait six or seven months then. I I've been trying to reduce that wait gap, but. Um, got a lot of people who want to listen to a lot of just start publishing twice so twice a week like uh, I did. no you're four times a week bud <laughs> well that's because i'm doing the the <laughs> yeah once i'm done with that it will be back all, right. Twice a week. all right unless you talk me into doing the Heinlein. i want you to do the i i i think somebody needs to do a serious non uh tan staffel style uh Heinlein critique and Everything I, uh, everything that that um, Robert A. Heinlein Trust account retweets, that is, you know, what their true politics is. They always say this is not a political organization. When when it's when it's just any old thing mentioning Heinlein, then they they say nothing. <laughs> so we need uh, we need Heinlein to be critiqued by someone who isn't in the tank for Tanstaffel or what's the other one? I don't know. Whatever Heinlein's philosophy is that lines up with crazy libertarian uh stuff the the heritage foundation that, those guys yeah yeah we need we need somebody to stand up for the the Heinlein that is the social credit guy who's really fucking weird who's who are the true heirs of robert a Heinlein? <laughs> i get that a joke little- Little joke for you there, Jesse. I appreciate it. I don't know. I heard we're not even need to read him anymore. Oh yeah, he's turgid. I heard. Well, you can read. um, You can read. What's his name now? Scalzi. Scalzi. You can just read Scalzi. Yeah. He processed everything 
just the way uh, you know all the uh, Lovecraft is being taken back away from the Lovecraft. <laughs> well, he's been processed down to a board game, so you're all right. Yeah, that's right. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio. I wrote it and then I figured out as I'm going like what the story is about. So it's not very good. But then I did something I don't normally do, which is like write up notes to how it would be an improved story. Um, you didn't see this, Connor? I DM'd this to you. Just then? or um... No, no. That was a couple of days ago. Okay, anyway, I'm going anyways, to go. I'll read it. Um, it's only 192 mm-hmm. words. Every night I dream, comma, I dream of the river, comma, the rushing water, comma, and my body being swept away into some far-off unmapped sea, period. Unmapped was a vocab word from, like, last week or something, so I was throwing that in there to remind them. Uh, disquieting, adjective. In the mornings, comma, just as dawn breaks through my little window, I feel myself drowning, comma, and suddenly wake up covered in a disquieting sweat. Disquieting is one of the vocab words for the contest hardship noun for 40 nights i have suffered this nocturnal hardship comma for 40 nights i have dreaded the night and the drowning embrace of rushing water period loathsome that's another of the contest words adjective by day i tend my chores slopping the master's pigs comma slopping oh no shearing his sheep comma and plowing his fields, comma. But drawing his water from the ho- uh, house's well is a loathsome task, and I shun it. Obviously, ripping off lots of Lovecraft there. Vocab words. Uh, invisible, adjective. Today, comma, after I shoveled out the stables, I saw three ducks fly overhead, period. They landed in a puddle by the well, and then flew off. But an invisible voice of warning... Oh, that's the other vocab word, invisible. But an invisible voice of warning has since called from that puddle, and I can hear it now from my bed, period. And then the last part here. Uncanny, last vocab word from the contest. I tried to... I tried closing my eye. It's hard to read because I'm sloppy here. I tried to close my eyes, but I could not sleep as the duck's uncanny call continues, and I know I cannot fly. Uh, But I will finish this diary now and return to bed, for a dream is just a dream. So I I came up with a clever idea of the title unlocking the story, right? Scrap of paper found in an old duck's nest. And and it's like, it's a pretty crappy story, right? So next thing I... Yeah, Jesse, you're right. It is It is pretty crappy. So this is what I wrote uh, notes to improve this story. I don't normally put notes. I just usually go and fix it, right? Or rewrite it or whatever. This story needs to have a river mentioned early on. The main character should be afraid of drowning, but not afraid of water. And should uh, and should get, get goose pimples, or the equivalent, without using the word goose. Or the duck should be a change to geese. Think about it more, I should play up the goose angle, as geese are a kind of animal you find on farms. 
perhaps mentioning a horse when mentioning the plowing. Maybe play up the bed as a nest, the scent of the pillow, have the reader somehow know it's filled with goose feathers. The dream should be comforting, but also disquieting. I like the narrator's gender being ambiguous, maybe, but if this is just a kind of ugly duckling story, maybe that's a problem? Dunno. Thinking about it more, I could compare it to Out in the Garden by Philip K. Dick, which is about a boy who is really a duck, and the son, S-O-N, and the son, <laughs> S-U-N, of Zeus Jove. You guys know that story, that Philip K. Dick story? No. Yeah, I haven't read that one. It's a good one. No. It's not public domain. Evan knows it, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, what do you think about... Uh, it's, I don't think it's one I've ever covered on the podcast. Out in the garden. Yeah, I, I always group that one with the clock one and the... Uh, you're talking about... one, people having sex with, you know, animals or clocks. The, the or, tree one. Trees. Is that... Uh, you mean the, the withered, uh, apples. withered apples? Okay, yeah. yeah. And then, they're all about adultery, right? In some way. Uh, well, yeah, I guess they are all about adultery. Now that you put it put it that way, yeah. Um, the duck one <laughs> out in the garden. Um, the girl, the the girlfriend or the wife seems to have had sex with the son. S U N. The baby is a is a is a. Uh, no, the boy is a duck. Yeah, and they have a pet duck. And they called the duck Sir Francis because he's a male duck, Sir Francis Drake. It's like <laughs> it's it's like Phil K. Dick's um, like unconscious is all over the page. So I'm thinking like I think when I was writing the this rando story, scrap of paper found in an old na- uh, duck's nest, I somehow like was thinking about Philip K. Dick's story without actually thinking about it because I'd read it right. So it's like writing these notes brings out the unconscious uh, uh, things behind it. I think that's interesting. But now we can start if you're if you're ready. I'm ready. <laughs> I'll miss cool. you, Connor. I'm... Sorry. I'll miss you, Connor. While we're podcasting. Yeah, I haven't talking. Haven't spoken to you for ages. Well, um, I might I might head off if you guys are starting then. Um, We'll, we'll be but, around uh, in, to least, in an hour or so. Good to at least uh, drop in and yeah, say hi to everyone. Sounds good. I I, I need to uh, confirm with you what what you're in for and what you're out for because I I don't I know that there's another sa- a bunch of Saturdays coming up and I think the next one might be Sil Mare, which you definitely should be on for. Yep. Yeah. Definitely. I have that for thirtieth of October. Okay. <laughs> so so um, I'm gonna I'm gonna ping you right after we talk oh, we talk today so that um I will confirm whatever the next one is because i think there's a bunch of saturdays coming up which are mostly to make it more easy for you cool okay awesome right. sounds good talk to yeah, you send later. me a message we'll, we'll figure do. it out okay sounds see you guys good. bye 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 nice to meet you connor nice to meet you too all right so i'm gonna just make sure that paul isn't trying to get on even though i'm pretty sure he isn't he is showing his yellow Everybody else is here, and make sure that Mice is not trying to muscle her way in here. Yeah, no, no. she's going to be on Family Feud. Yeah, yeah, I gotta, I gotta watch Family Feud now. Who do you know who she's going to be on with? Like, is it going to be her literal family, or is it going to be one of these like uh, her boss and her uncle and 
the boss. I think it's her literal family. I oh, think, that'll be I think interesting. her tweet said that her family had like entered the lottery for it and wow. succeeded. Okay. And it was like a picture of their family. Okay. Because uh, her daughter is like a semi-famous YouTuber, right? So that'll be interesting. The old media meeting the new media. So, family almost- Feud. It's uh, like, you know, there's nothing on here in Colorado other than Family Feud at 4 o'clock. So, well, unless there's something on PBS. I got some pretty good stuff on PBS uh, in that time slot. But... We, I've watched more Family Feud than, um, I don't know, I really like to admit to. I've been watching a lot lately, too. Have you? Go to a bar during the day. They put on that game show network. I don't know why that's popular among the day drinkers here in <laughs> Wausau. Day drinkers. But it's, it's off and on. The night drinkers watch, watch horror movies or something. I don't know. I, I, I think well, no, they watch football. The kind of flawed, though. I, I like the point system makes no sense. I don't. I all I all I think about Family Feud is it is pretty lowbrow, but also it has that. Um, it's actually kind of like uh, what's that street in Madison Avenue? Because it's it's like what what surveys say, right? Yeah. So you know, survey says. Yeah, who's the best president in American history? Survey says Donald Trump. What a surprise! <laughs> well, who are the other candidates mentioned? And then they go down the list, right? And it's like they don't remember like most of the presidents. They, you know, Washington, and you know, they just hit the highlights of the last. You know, what? Th- that's the thing is they're not actually looking for correct answers, right? It's like what is yeah, what is the best thing to drink the in the afternoon? What the audience said, and who knows exactly. what the audience is. Exactly. Yeah, it's really testing how how kind of it's a it's a very Madison are, Avenue. You answer and, the first thing that comes yeah. in your head. Yeah, and if that's the top answer, then you win. But you, you it's second guessing too, right? So like, will you are you tapped in to the frequency, or are you are you trying to are you are you Mister Generic? Or are you able to under model Mr. Generic's mind? Well, I think that's the tough because you don't got the time. You got like three seconds to answer a question. Right. So. Right. Uh, well, actually, you hit that button and that then process of. I think it's like John Adams, but right, actually, right. Trump, who's most responsible for writing the the Constitution of the United States, right? And, it's, <laughs> and if it, you know, if it's none of the founding fathers, <laughs> I don't. I I would say Jefferson, but but maybe the, maybe they think Adams. You got uh, you're wrong. Yeah, I yeah. Know. I think it's he Madison. In France during that it was Madison. Uh, yeah, I mean, but no, like it, it's it's like who is actually who actually f- sat down and wrote it versus what people think who sat down and wrote it. Right, yeah, Donald Trump probably. <laughs> <laughs> Could be. Well, it's guy. <laughs> Yeah, he's a good old Minnesota guy. He's right next to Wisconsin. I I think I was thinking about this a little bit too because of uh, what's his name that comedian who died. Um, he's a good comedian, uh, Canadian, and he had uh, he he played um, he played uh, Turd Ferguson on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> this guy, you you know the famous uh, comedian who died this week. Or McDonald died. That's him. Yeah, because he 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 was sort of famous for a sketch he did. He wasn't in very many sketches on Saturday Night Live. He was the anchor guy, right, head writer or whatever. Um, but he, him playing Burt Reynolds, Burt Reynolds, 
Oh um, yeah, on those Celebrity Jeopardy. Oh, is it Jeopardy? Yeah, it might yeah, have been Jeopardy. Jeopardy. Yeah, versus Family Feud. Okay, yeah. Maybe that. Maybe I'm thinking about it wrong. Anyways, I'm ready. Let's do a show. Uh, so, in order of uh, precedence, Jesse, uh, Evan, Will, Mike. Okay. Sounds okay. good. Good. All good. Right. All right. One more little tabby thingy. Uh, I wrote about this story a long time ago. I'm just trying to find that. You know, I made a joke about uh, this was with um, Brian Alexander uh, on Twitter a couple of days ago, and I was like, it's not really a joke. That's the sad part. Um, okay, it's the last of the masters. And the ma- uh, the joke was, um, uh, you can close tabs. I just, I just walk away and get a new computer. Um, it's because, like, I I never turn my computer off anymore because I have a million tabs open. And they don't close themselves. When tabs were invented, I was like, this is really handy, right? Now I don't have to have sixteen instances of Firefox open. I just have one instance of Firefox and a bunch of tabs. But the tabs never close. And it's the same on my phone. I have like 1,600 tabs open. <laughs> it's like... This sounds like a like a like an internet hygiene problem. It is. It's it's clearly... But <laughs> but but it wasn't one that like I, I, I did to myself. It's sort of the technology did it to me. No, no, no. Jesse, you've done this to yourself. Like there's a way to manage this. You just have to close tabs. Yeah, but closing tabs is now is now um, like if I close the bra- if I minimize the browser, I I keep the thing I was working on. But if I've got sixteen hundred tabs open, I have to go through and find all the ones I'm not working on. So it was like easier <laughs> back in the good old days when you had to have two instances of the same browser to have two. Uh, we've had this problem for a while. Tabs are not a new invention. But it's literally true. Like I, I just picked up my old phone, and I was like, I was, I look at, I charged it up because I was, was going to do a little camera thing, and uh, turns out I had a podcast with Evan's podcast still open on it that I haven't listened to in like a year and a half since my got my new phone. I was like, oh man! And then I looked at the browser history, and it had like a whole bunch of tabs open. <laughs> it's like I did literally do what I said was you know just a joke. But it was it was it, it's funny because it's true. It's a sad story. All right, let's get started. I'm sorry I'm distracting us from the important work ahead of us. Here we go.